Hey there, Dave here. Before getting into the episode, I have some cool people that I would like to say thank you to. People like the Top 3 Podcast Crew, Chris Nelson, Zolgeek, Colby Moyer, Eric Guess, Rick Firestone, and Jill. These lovely people have all gone to patreon.com slash Jackson and supported the tube and the podcasts within. You can be just like them by heading to patreon.com slash Jackson. As little as $2 per month will get you some treats like voting rights on what comes up on episodes of a top three podcast and Tales from the Backlog, bonus episodes and bonus content, and much more. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Jackson. Check it out. That'd be very cool of you, and you would be my hero. All right, on to the show. Hey everybody, my name is Dave Jackson and you're listening to Tales from the Backlog, a video games podcast where each week I'm joined by a guest to talk about a game we played. My guest today is a friend of the show, host of the Gaming in the Wild podcast and the old prospector himself, John Rogers. Welcome to the show. Hello. Um, I guess this isn't the accent you expect from the old prospector, but it's what I got. (laughs) Yeah, good to have you on the show, dude. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Today we're going to be talking about Inscription, which is a roguelike deck builder developed by Daniel Mullins Games and published by Devolver Digital in 2020 for PC with a PlayStation port released in 2022. And uh, by the time you're listening to this, who knows, hopefully Inscription is in more places. Uh, I know I waited quite a while to be able to play this myself. Um, so let's give a little elevator pitch for people who are listening and don't quite know what to expect from Inscription. Uh, John, what would you say? I would say that not knowing what to expect from Inscription is exactly the right state to start playing Inscription. <laughs> this is a game to avoid the spoilers on, but my elevator pitch is Inscription is ostensibly a roguelike deck battler, but it's also a creepy and compelling journey into the dark. Its strange story unfolds through a slick, addictive card game, punctuated by escape room puzzles, unsettling moments, and wild twists. Avoid the spoilers and expect the unexpected. There we go. Very good. We uh we had a multi-floor elevator ride there for that pitch, but that's good. Yeah. Um I I would say that yeah, this is um first and foremost a deck building card game. Uh so you must uh expect that. But as you might expect if you've played other games by Daniel Mullins, there's more going on here. And we're we're gonna like tread lightly on that stuff and kind of intro into the spoiler policy here. This is a game where people say, you know, go in totally blind. You you must not know anything about this before playing. And I disagree with that notion for most games. Um, and this one too, we're going to talk about the aesthetics. We're going to talk about what it's like to play the card game, but we did mention that there is more there and we are going to tread very lightly on that stuff. So if you have not played inscription, maybe, you know, Go play it. It's good. Go play it. But we will avoid the the big spoilers, of course, because that's how this show works. 
Before we get into talking about the game, uh, John, you are the host of Gaming in the Wild, and you describe the show as uh, looking at games from the, I think it's, you say, the artistic and creative side of the tracks, right? So what is going on on Gaming in the Wild? Uh, well, that show started, it's, we're getting up to the third anniversary of the show um, in springtime. It's been going for a couple years now. It's a weekly show, um, and it started off it started off with me being like a gamer all my life, but then taking some time out because I moved country and I had to sell all my crap um, and I couldn't bring any consoles. <laughs> and so I took a, a while away from games and then came back. And in the, in the time when I was away, a lot changed. Like between mm-hmm. 2012, 2019, um, a lot had happened in that interim, including pretty much the arrival of our current um, indie gaming scene. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of stuff that just wasn't there before. Like when I was playing before, it was a lot of um, JRPGs, a lot of Nintendo, a lot of first party stuff. Um, and then since I had been gone, things like Journey had arrived, things like uh, Kentucky Route Zero were happening. And it seemed like gaming had grown up a little bit. Like the devs that at my age who grew up with games were themselves getting older. And there was just more interesting stuff happened than I remembered and stuff that was appealing to me on different levels. And so this, when I say artistic and creative, I, I am attempting to dig out games that have something special to offer, something different, something interesting. But it's a one-person show, so like I just have to talk about what I'm playing. There's no other mm-hmm. option, you know. So um, sometimes it just is something big and mainstream. But the, the real heart of the show is trying to dig up indie games that are doing something cool um, and talk about them every week. Yeah, and that's, I mean, so I've been listening to Gaming in the Wild for a little while now uh, since I found it, uh, since I started interacting on Twitter a little bit, started listening to the show. And I I really do appreciate that kind of approach, uh, especially like you said, trying to dig out some indie games and stuff that are not getting, you know, the publicity that the God of War Ragnarok and the, you know, Last of Us Part One are getting and stuff like that. Uh, So I really appreciate it. This is something I always say to guests who have podcasts like this, where they're you know, you very clearly care about gaming as an art form and a way to tell stories and things like that. And not just like a relaxing thing to do after work and then never think about it again, you know? And if that's the way that people consume games, that's that's totally cool. That's how, how you spend your time. But I really do appreciate podcasts who really look into gaming as an art form and a way to tell stories. And I really feel like you do a good job with that. So I'm happy to talk with you today uh, about inscription. Yeah, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I come at this from a certain angle as well, because, you know, I went through, like, art, art was my studies over the years, and I've worked as a journalist over the years, kind of trying to sort my thoughts into messages for people, and it's what I did for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so actually pulling everything together, like that interest in the artistic angle on everything, and that, that will to try and um, lift up and celebrate good bits of culture, which I did when I was a journalist, it's kind of all pumped into this podcast. And so I, I like that you that you get that from it. Thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, and definitely recommend um, everybody check out Gaming in the Wild and you'll be able to find uh, links to it down in the show notes, as always, for easy access. So let's get into talking about Inscription. And we always start with our personal histories with the game and what brought us to Inscription. So I'll start with you, John. Why Inscription? Um, I, I can, I can see way too much gaming media, to be honest with you. If I'm working, I've usually <laughs> got a video on a, on a screen to the side or a podcast. I listen to tens of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I first found this one, now that you mention it, it was on Easy Allies, 
It was Isla who runs the desk um, for their podcast. Usually, sometimes we'll just play a, a random indie game on stream. And one of the days I tuned in and it was the demo of Inscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the second that those white eyes opened up across the table, yeah. and the strange pixely sheen and the darkness and the sound of it, I was just like, what is this game? And I watched uh-huh. the demo, which is, I guess, like a run, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um and and was immediately sucked into it. So I bought it the day it came out, um, played it on a weekend, played the entire thing in, I think, probably three sittings, late into the Jeez. night often. Yeah. Because um, it takes a little while to get through it, you know, like you have to mm-hmm. figure some stuff out. Um, I also like card games. You know, I like I like um, Slay the Spire, like everyone. I like uh, Iris and the Giant, always looking for a card game. Um, and so was was hooked in by that. But I also like games that just do something weird. Um, and yeah. do it well. And so this is a card game that does something weird and does it very well. Mm-hmm. And if you, like you said, if you're like me and you and you consume lots of gaming media, you've surely heard the name Daniel Mullins before and that his games do weird stuff. Um, so that was part of the draw for me. I didn't play Pony Island. I did the classic gamer thing. I bought it on Steam like two years ago. Haven't played it, but I have it. Haven't played it yet, but like you, I like deck builders. I like uh, card games, and I also like if you're going to give me a good deck builder and that extra, you know, that weirdness, I'm automatically interested. Uh, and I know that Daniel Mullins has a good reputation. So when I heard that, and then later, I don't have a P- I didn't at the time have a PC that could run this, so I was always just kind of like, yeah, I hope I get to play it one day. And then it started getting game of the year buzz. And I was like, okay, whenever it gets a console port, I'm playing it immediately. And the day it dropped on PlayStation, I bought it and started playing it. Um, This game actually lost a patron poll for Tales from the Backlog, but I played it anyway because I was so interested in it. Uh, So yeah, it it was really like, I didn't really need to be sold very much on this game. I was pretty much in from the beginning. Yeah, I will will also say that this game was... It was interesting to me, but I had no, I had no um, conception of exactly what kind of rabbit hole it was going to be. And it actually ended yeah. up spinning me around and it ended up being my game of the year for 2021 on the podcast. Just a complete outsider choice. You know, when you think your, gaming of the, your game of the year list is starting to look like the right kind of shape and you're mm-hmm. in October and then something like Inscription lands and you just bump everything down a slot immediately. <laughs> it was like, that's what happened with this game for me. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah, you mentioned that this game is not uh, that this game is pretty substantial. Uh, so if you're wondering how long this game takes, uh, it took me about 20 hours to get through the story, like the whole thing. And then uh, there is a thing that unlocks after you beat it that is like just the card game called Casey's Mod. And I played a handful of rounds of that, and I enjoyed that too. Uh, but yeah, about 20 hours was that your experience here too? It was almost exactly 20 hours, yeah. And I, I actually, nice. it's been a year since I opened it. Um, I never played Casey's mod. I keep meaning to. Um, but I did replay some of the game just to refresh myself for this chat, just to get the, um, cause you know, card games have such specific rules. It's often, mm-hmm. I think card games are sometimes the hardest games for me to talk about on the podcast. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so uh, systems based and they're so mechanics based. And it can sometimes be a little dry when you're mm-hmm. like, a, yeah. And then you have to add up their, attack against your shield and but then you can also poison them and like it's not specially great sometimes you know so (laughs) but i think that this one is i tend to lean evocative when i like talk about games and lean mood 
Um, and, and there's enough of that in inscription to carry the card game chat. But it was, it was a good refresher, actually, just to kind of re-align um, my thinking on how the card game works and doesn't yeah. sometimes. Yeah, and that's a good segue into just some kind of opening thoughts here before we start digging into it. Um, I think the card game is really fun, and that kind of evocative mood and atmosphere is thick in this game. It is an excellent atmosphere and aesthetics type of game. Um, in addition to being a pretty fun card game. Um, I got frustrated a few times throughout. And then once I took a step back and thought about like, why is this happening? I started to like understand because this is unlike Slay the Spire and unlike Monster Train and games like that. This game has a story too. And it's a bit of a balancing act when you have a deck building roguelike with a story on top of it. So that kind of explains away those things. And like you said, atmosphere just everywhere you can cut it with a knife it's incredible in this game yeah it really is um there's such a strong mood to it i, I like that it's it's a story game with card mechanics as the the foundation stones but just this entire you, you know if you have any if anyone's played um what became of edith finch you know mm -hmm. when you first see the house and you're like what the hell is that it's like a house with 10 other houses built on top of it that's kind of uh -huh. how i feel about inscription <laughs> yeah except this one you know since there is such a hush hush mood about it uh, by the time, even by the time I got to it, like a year and a half after it released, I was still very like clean slate. I didn't, you know, I didn't watch streams of it or anything. I didn't know what to expect. And there's just so much flavor. Even like you said, even though it is a card game and card games can be super mechanics heavy, the mechanics in this game have a bunch of flavor associated with them too. So it's it's really it's really really good i'll just just say that yeah it's a pretty like i don't know i, I it, i'm trying to imagine someone who's going to play this and hate it and it, i think if you just don't like card games maybe not but yeah if you like card games at all i think this game is pretty good so let's uh take a little music break when we come back we're going to start digging into inscription So starting out with Inscription, before we start talking about the cards, we're just going to start talking with aesthetics because when you boot this game up, it's going to be the first thing you notice before you start playing cards or anything like that, you are going to notice how it looks and how it sounds. So um, I think that this game is an absolute feast as far as aesthetics go. It's horror themed and I was kind of worried it would be scary, but it's more just, you know, color scheme looks like a horror game and it's dark and the sound design is creepy but i didn't ever really find myself scared in this game did you no i'm i'm um someone that will tend to bust out a couple horror games once a year to do a pod in, in october but it's not mm -hmm. my natural um taste i'm a little bit averse to being fully creeped out uh -huh. but i do love sometimes a horror game that's a fun ride um, and it doesn't really 
aim to get under your skin too much. Um, for mm-hmm. example, like Resident Evil Village last year, it's more like a ghost train with lots of splatter and crazy, <laughs> crazy monsters. And uh-huh. that I loved. And I would say that Inscription has lots of the trappings of horror games. There's a little bit of splatter here and there. There's a little bit of oddness. You know, the whole thing is based on violence to some degree for yeah. <laughs> more than uh-huh. most card games. But at the same time, it never overplays its hand, no pun intended. Um, it's, it's a, a game with lots of creeps and spooks and horror elements to it. But it's not the kind of game that's going to make you look over your shoulder after you've finished playing. No, definitely not. There's some like, there's some, how do I even say like light body horror? Body horror is body horror a little bit in this game, like little bits and pieces of it. But like you said, it's not going to be a game that like keeps you up at night, I don't think. So visually, uh, the first thing that I really notice is that I think this game has like a great color scheme to it. It's you're in a dark room. And there's lots of oranges and red. And then there's a bunch of neon that like really contrasts with that really well. Uh, It catches your eye. And those tend to be really important things that you should be paying attention to, whether it's neon on your cards or neon elsewhere around the room that you're in and stuff. I thought this, this is just like a really good looking game from that perspective. Yeah, you get the feeling that you're in safe hands with Daniel Mullins, right? Like um, everything that you're supposed to notice, you notice. Mm-hmm. Um, things, things are done well, like the light is used well. If there's a candle glowing somewhere, then you know you're supposed to look at something there. Uh-huh. It's pro game developer stuff. But at the same time, like, there's a lot to like about the visuals. I like that it mixes up polygons, um, kind of crude polygons, you could say. It mm-hmm. reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, the haunted PS1 demo disc scene where they're making these kind of slightly janky polygony horror games that hark back to that era with slightly mm-hmm. crude textures. And everything looks like it's just about holding together, but that it could quite easily fall apart. And I think mm-hmm. Inscription's got a little bit of that in there. And maybe that's yeah. what was going around at the time when it was made, actually. Like games like Paratopic, that use old-fashioned textures. Mm. Like the wooden table in Inscription has got quite a crunchy wood texture on it. But yeah. then if you look up at the actual, um, your opponent in the card game, or different things in the rooms, they are 3D graphics. So it's yeah. a really nice mixture. And, and something about that darkness and that mixture of old and new texture and polygon to me kind of makes it seem like it's a game out of time somehow like you could look at it and not know when it was made and i think Uh that that's good that's good to strike that note of weirdness as well yeah you you can definitely also look at it from your character's perspective and have no idea where or when in time you are you know in this game it's a it's a really good artistic choice um i think it's got like a there's a like a graininess to it too or like a a filter that makes things look slightly more pixelated than they actually are whether it's the cards or you know the hands uh you know that if you played inscription you know the hands you know what i'm talking about um all that stuff really really like nice um aesthetically uh just just talking about the way it looks yeah he did a great job with this um you know when i guess i'm curious about mullins and his process actually i'd like to know um, I guess we, we do know a little bit that this game came from a game jam, right? That it came from a, a game mm. jam project called um, Sacrifices Must Be Made. So you can look at the actual root of it, and it does look like that aesthetic was in the in the early uh, germination of this game. I guess if you're making yeah. a game jam, you have to bang everything together pretty quickly. But it mm-hmm. looks like the look and feel and rules happened fast, and then you just build yeah. from there. That makes sense, because if you are going to talk about like visual you know, rules to follow when 
making the way this game looks. It is really simple. There's not a whole lot of different colors happening. And like you said, simple polygons and stuff like this isn't Final Fantasy VII, but you know what I mean. It's not, this isn't, this also isn't like the latest and greatest in like high res textures or something like that. Sound design is another thing I really loved about this game. Usually when I talk about sound on the show, it's because I have a soundtrack I really want to talk about. But in this game, the music really, really takes a backseat as just kind of like mood stuff in the background. Um, And then you get this like kind of fuzzy pulsing sound that happens throughout your game that every time it came up, I was like, this is how did he even, what is the sound even like, how does one even make this sound? It accomplishes like kind of creeping you out and making you feel unnerved, uh, without it's not like a, you know, jump scare sounds or something like that. It's just this fuzzy happening. Oh God. Yeah. That sound like even you just doing that, we gave me like, Oh God, something's going to (laughs) happen. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I quite like the music in this one. Actually it's because the, the, when you begin playing cards in the cabin, the wooden cabin, the dark cabin, you're not sure where you are. And the music that starts is so minimal. It's just a couple, like a, lo- a lonesome, like banjo being plucked really slowly. Mm-hmm. And so it just gives you this kind of stillness and quietude of being far from civilization. Um, as the game progresses, like things ramp up a little. And I thought that the the sound really kept pace with that and the music kept pace with that. Um, when I recorded my episode, I used lots of, um, music from the game is um, to sort of intersperse what I was talking about. And there was quite a lot to choose from actually listening back to it. They did a great job mm. with this as well. Yeah. And the um, the sound effects in the game are really, really good too. Uh, when you're playing the card game, you have these, uh, we'll say weights for now that drop on the scales as you score points and stuff like that. All of those have really satisfying, like uh, I can't think of the onomatopoeia, but really satisfying sound when they drop on there sounds that happen when you use certain items throughout the game, which I don't want to say right now. Very good. Uh, just from a sound design perspective, it's it's really effective too. The sound of cards shuffling around and stuff as well. Yeah, you're right, actually. It's pretty tactile now that you put it that way. Um, as you were describing the sounds, I could hear all of them, like the weights mm-hmm. dropping onto the scale and the sound changing as more of them drop even. Like, ching, 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 ching. You know, like yep. uh, lots of things at <laughs> once. It was kind of, it's all very well done. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Just aesthetically, all of these things go together uh, from the art to the colors, to the sounds, to that background music and whatever the hell that weird fuzzy sound is. All of those things go together to build up this atmosphere that we've mentioned before. That is a, you know, that might be the, the ring the bell, take a drink word when we're in the early portions of this episode, when we talk about the atmosphere and inscription, because it's thick and it led to me thinking that like my character is at the same time in danger, but not in immediate danger. Like th- this is not a safe place where your character is, but I definitely didn't feel like someone's going to leap over the table and strangle me or something like that at any time, or someone's going to bust through the door and jump scare me. It's a weird and yeah, kind of oppressive, creepy atmosphere yet somehow cozy in a way. It is. It is like the the cabin itself is such a strange little room, mm-hmm. <laughs> such a strange little room. There's just this creepy stuff around, and the fact that looking over the table at your opponent, you can just see those eyes. You don't know yeah. who they are. You get a sense of. There's definitely a question in the opening segment of the game, like where am I and how did I get here? That's something to uh-huh. think about as the game goes on. Um, and and yeah, the mixture of 
dark wood, feeling like you're way away from the city, feeling like who the hell is this person sitting opposite me and what, what the hell am I doing here? There's mm. like a slight feeling of discomfort um, and menace, but it, it's, um, it's quite tightly played. Yeah. I think you, I think you said it like, as soon as you boot this up, as soon as you start playing, if you're not in, if you're not hooked by this atmosphere, um, and definitely if you're not into the card game, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, then this, uh, this game is definitely not for you. But in saying that, I'm not sure who's going to boot this up and be like, I don't feel it because it's just, it's so well made here. All this, uh, yeah, atmosphere. There's that word. Take a drink, everybody. I need better synonyms. <laughs> Let me boot up the thesaurus here. Yeah, I would say that sometimes, you know, I wasn't naturally a card game fan, actually. Slay the Spire was my first one. I was not drawn to them. I'd never played them before until a couple of years ago. And sometimes there is one that just breaks the glass ceiling a little bit. Um, and you're like, anyone should play this game, not just card game fans. And I think this is definitely one of those. Yeah, this is a good chance to listen to a little bit more of that music. And when we come back, we're going to dig into this card game because I do think it is a lot of fun. So Inscription at its core is a card game. Uh, You may see screenshots and stuff and think, you know, what is this? It's a card game. And I think it's a pretty good one. So the way it is, if you played Slay the Spire, I think it's kind of unavoidable that we make some comparisons uh, because both of us have already brought that game up. But it really is like Slay the Spire, like Monster Train. You're working your way through nodes on a map. And some of them have battles, some of them have events, some of them have deck building choices to make, uh, and the goal is to get to the end, uh, to beat the game. And that's what this game is. So when you're doing the kind of card battles, uh, you are playing against an actual opponent sitting across the table. We've mentioned him with his glowing eyes and stuff. And the goal of the game is to uh, get your cards on the board, and we'll talk about how to do that. And you want to get your cards to either take out the opposing cards or get them to oppose empty spaces, because that's how you score points uh, in this game. And if you score enough points, uh, you win. Talking about scoring, though, we mentioned the scale. And this game doesn't have a simple like first person to five wins. It has a scale and you have to weigh down the scale to win. And I think I think you need to be plus five, if I'm remembering right. Is that right, John? Um, in the early part of the game, I think it's, um, six plus one. Is it? Um, okay. But yeah, it's, it's, as, as you were saying, it's not your traditional use your cards, lose your cards, and then the best one wins. It's definitely like the, t- the tug of war with the scales is what made this one pop for me as being something different, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That tug of war is, it, it's a really good choice as far as design goes because, you can have a really good strategy going and then suddenly something happens to you where some of your good cards get wiped out. The opponent starts scoring points, that scale starts to tip and you start to be like, okay, what can I do here? How can I kind of turn the tides here? And you can, I've had so many battles in this game where 
The scale goes both ways several times until there's finally a winner decided, especially in some of the boss battles and stuff. It, it the tug of war was a really good choice. Yeah, it's really it's quite a dynamic sort of system, isn't it? Like unpredictable mm-hmm. twists and turns happen. Um, you you are you know the cards that you get into your hand, you can be in a losing position and spin it around, and you can feel like you're in a winning position and just be demolished. And it, yeah, as you said, it can swing both ways a lot of times. And at the start of every particular battle you do get all your cards back so yeah. um you know it's like a it is roguelike i guess um but those battles just feel like they're different every time and different every run yeah it doesn't feel random but in the way that like maybe they do randomly select from a handful of scenarios for each node uh, on the map like the battles and stuff so uh i think i mentioned this before but again you you put your cards down on the table if your card directly opposes another like opposing card, they will fight and it's a simple attack versus HP, you know, calculation. If your card opposes an empty space, then you'll do direct damage on the scale uh, toward winning. So that's the key is getting into a way that you can either do enough damage to empty spaces to just overcome and like not care about what cards the opponent has or try to take out enough of the opposing cards so that their side of the board is empty and then you can, uh, yeah, win. Uh, cool thing here is um, the opponent, like we said, it's a, it's an opponent. It's a player you're playing against. If they feel like they have no chance, they will offer you a kind of like, you know, let's just call this one a handshake, you know. But they lie sometimes, like just often enough that I never took their... I never took them up on it because there is a benefit to like just destroying them um, in a in a big way in the battles. Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit of a hard system to describe um, in in the way that it's actually card versus card battle. But when there isn't something opposite you, then you hit the opponent. Right. Um, I think one way to one. I mean, some one of the most interesting things that happened to me was having a very powerful card that was like a yeti or something, and that was on the left square. Um, and he had like a bunch of sparrows that were hitting me for one damage each, but mm-hmm. my one Yeti was hitting for four. And so I put it on the left-hand side of the board. So it was striking past all of the sparrows and hitting him. So every time the turn went over, he was hitting me for three and then I was hitting him for four. And so mm-hmm. three weights fell on my side and then four weights fell on his side and then three weights fell on my side and four weights and it right. became this like <laughs> attrition. And one yeah. by one, the scales ended up being in my favor, you know, so you're mm-hmm. kind of striking past his cards to, to win the round. Yeah. And, and there is a layer of strategy there for sometimes like when you play a game like this, you may think like, what I need to do is kill all the cards on the other side and then I'll win. But there is a layer of strategy where you don't have to do that. The goal is to do damage to the opponent not necessarily to kill all their cards. Taking all their cards out will make things a lot easier for you, but sometimes it's not as easy to take out the cards. Yeah, a mm-hmm. lot of strategy here and kind of match by match also. Like what worked for you last match might not work for you in the next one. Yeah, they throw a lot of curveballs at you and the types of and the types of things that are coming your way. Yeah. Yeah, and you can always see you can only see one layer of cards that you have on the table. So you can, you only have four spots to play a card. But you mm-hmm. can see the uh, the enemy's cards coming towards you. So you can see that, like, next turn, his entire back row is going to move forward one. So you can right. pre-plan a little bit. So it is like player versus player, but it's not like you're both on an even footing. It's more like there are waves coming at you. Yeah. And he's coming for you. 
basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a nice touch to give you give the opponent that extra row, which means they can play more cards than you, but uh, it does give you that extra turn to see what's coming and adjust accordingly. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I think is really nice about this card game is that you have two types of cards. You have your main deck and then you have the squirrels. And the squirrels don't do any damage. They only have one hit point. They are not generally useful for anything except to like, maybe you're in an emergency situation. They're going to hit you and win the game. Just put a squirrel in front of that card, let it die, and then you know survive one more turn. But most of the time, squirrels are used uh, as sacrifices in this game. And before I get into sacrificing, you can think of squirrels as a currency or like an energy type of card. Uh, Pokemon trading card game episode was not too long ago on the show. Energy cards in Pokemon trading card game. But in Pokemon, they were in your main deck. So you every turn you might draw an energy card that you need or you might not. In this game, they're separate decks. And at the beginning of each turn, you choose what you want. Do I want a main card or do I want a squirrel? Do I need energy in air quotes or do I need something that's actually going to do damage? I think this is another really awesome choice as far as designing a card game. Yeah, I don't um, play any real life card games, but when I listen to a couple of podcasts about Inscription, I was listening to the short game. They always do great episodes. Um, and Shane, one of the hosts of the short game, plays Magic the Gathering and he gets castigated for talking about it constantly on the short game. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he described it as a side deck, which was not a, not a term that I had heard before. Mm-hmm. So there is like the main deck, which is your playable animals that are going to be doing your damage and then the side deck. And you just have to have a squirrel in order to get anything on the board at all. Yeah. Um, but you are, you are dealt for playable cards at the start, aren't you? Yeah. And one squirrel. So you always start with a handful of cards and you're going to need squirrels to get them down on the board. Yeah. And so a lot of times you'd find yourself in a situation where it's like, I have this card. I can't play it yet because I need more energy, more blood. It's a, it's blood in here. Uh, so you may think like, you know, I, I don't really have anything I can do this turn. Well, just draw a squirrel. You're going to need it later. Like the, you can never have too many squirrels in your hand. Um, and I just think it's a really good deck building choice to separate these. And a good rule for life. You know, you can never have too many squirrels in your hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if, if I have any motto in my life, so you can never have too many squirrels. And uh, what was it from Vampire Survivors? Always upgrade your Bible. <laughs> and what is it there? I've been reading about Scorn a little bit lately as well. The survival horror motto of save one bullet. It's a bit like that, except it's save one squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> Always have a squirrel. Uh, so the squirrels, uh, we kind of led into this. The squirrels are a type of um, way to get your currency. There's two currencies in this game uh, that you'll use. One of them is called blood that you get by sacrificing cards. And so uh, playable cards that do damage have a blood requirement. So you'll need to sacrifice one, two, maybe three, sometimes four cards to be able to then play this new card um, on there. And as the blood requirements get higher, the cards get stronger most of the time. So you're constantly in this kind of, you know, strategy of I can draw one squirrel and I can play that, but the card I need to play needs two blood. So I need to sacrifice another card. Do I wait another turn and draw another squirrel or sacrifice another card that's on the board? Uh, maybe they're almost dead. So I can sacrifice them, get the blood, play a stronger card. And this 
is kind of like your energy as you go throughout the game. Um, and I, I really, really like this. Like it's, it's simple. It's intuitive. You get it within the first few hands that you play in your first run. I was like, okay, blood easy. I understand this. Yeah. And there's a really nice touch too. So if you've got three cards down, like say you've got like sparrow, snake and a deer or something, and mm-hmm. then you've got this bear that you want to get down that costs three blood. You can put it down, but you're killing all your cards, basically. And when you right. wield the bear and lean towards the table, all of those three cards you've got there will shiver because they know <laughs> they know that the yeah. sword of Damocles is like hanging over them now and that you're about to kill them all. <laughs> it's a really nice touch. Yeah, it's a really nice touch to have kind of the, the cards that you play are inanimate to a degree, and it's nice to have them react to what's going on. Um, they are all animals or animal-ish. There's a couple of eldritch monsters uh, cards that you can draw. And I really like how the opponent that you're playing against is also kind of like your game master for this game. And uh, you can, you know, pick up a card and sometimes they'll comment on what that card is. And there are a couple where he's just like, I don't know what the hell that is. Uh, Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning, actually, that when you walk along the map, like the Slay the Spire style, map with branching paths choosing whether or not you want to battle or to pick up an object mm-hmm. um the 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 dungeon master character o- over the table from you will roll the map out in a very tactile way and yeah. that your piece is like a wooden piece so whatever you click on the piece jumps over to it and mm-hmm. then when when you land for an encounter the map is rolled away and if it's a battle then the the card battle map is rolled out physically onto the table mm-hmm. so it definitely feels like he's curating the game for you and taking some dark pleasure in it yeah, absolutely. And it, it adds just a little bit of flavor um, in addition to like this pretty mechanically fun uh, card game. So the other currency that you have are bones, and you get a bone when a card dies or when it's sacrificed. And uh, you can use these bones to play special cards that don't need blood, they need bones. So it's an extra layer of like kind of later match strategy to have some cards that require bones because you're going to be accumulating them throughout the game. Uh, so it's just, it. this feels like they made the card game and then they figured out like, oh, we need kind of something for like the later portions of these. And the bones really felt like a, a good second currency that you're kind of slowly accumulating. And then there's some really, really good cards that you can play, but they require bones. So you can't play them early in the match most of the time. It's something for later. Yeah, and if you've got like, if you have a um, a powerful bone card dealt into your starting hand, you can't play that for a while. You're just sitting on that card, but you do know mm-hmm. that every time you're going to sacrifice a squirrel, you get a bone. Every time he kills one of your cards, you get a little bone. And mm-hmm. so when you get to five, then maybe that's time to drop that, you know, rattlesnake or whatever it was, and you know that you've got that in your back pocket. And you get bones whether or not he kills your cards or whether or not you kill them yourselves. So you can strategically murder your own cards to get that um, powerful bone card down as well. Yeah, definitely. And there are some cards that pretty much just exist to be sacrificed for blood or for bones. Uh, They may have some properties where, you know, sacrificing this card gives you three blood instead of one or four bones instead of one. So it's good to have some of those uh, to kind of build those up. Yeah. And especially because if you've got like a bear or a yeti or something that's going to take three blood to get onto the table, um, you you kind of have to wipe out your own force to get it down. And so that's like a yeah. little hack that you can strategically get it down faster. And it's just another layer onto the card game. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you're hearing us describe multiple currencies and, you know, 
playing different animals and sacrificing and stuff. If you if you're listening to this and you're thinking like this sounds kind of complicated, it's intuitive. It can be complicated and there's a great deal of strategy that goes into these decisions you're making, but it's intuitive and that's the important part. I never felt like I don't understand these systems in here. Yeah, it's incredibly well introduced as well, right? Like when you start it walks you through things very simply. Mm-hmm. But you have this creepy ass games master telling you what the rules are. <laughs> and so it never, it doesn't even feel like a tutorial. It's like yeah. part of the game is that you're being taught by this strange being how to play it. Um, mm-hmm. so even the tutorial is entertaining. It's part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that this is, I mean, I found myself taking a lot of card games are easy to learn, hard to master, right? But they, mm-hmm. the complication is endless. Like in Slay the Spire, I think I've got 80 hours in it. And I still don't fully understand some of the systems. And sometimes when I play, I'll play a card I've never played before and been like, oh, that's what that does. Why wasn't I using that this whole 80 hours? Mm-hmm. But inscription is tighter, I would say. It's yeah. tighter. Like there is less um, dizzying scope, less little icons everywhere of like this yeah. status effects and that sort of thing. It's a really tight card game, but it's very, very, very um, dynamic, well put together and lots of strategy within that small set of rules. So I would yeah. say it's probably easier to pick up than a lot of card games out there. Yeah, agreed. Uh, one thing I kind of got frustrated with when I was playing, and th- this is kind of what I alluded to in that kind of opening section there, is that your opponent doesn't play by these rules regarding blood and bones and things. And I got frustrated by that because I'm here I am, I'm, I'm fighting for my life trying to get enough blood to play a decent card. And they are playing f- three, sometimes four cards in a turn. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like this, this is unfair. And I was frustrated by that because, you know, this is a roguelike. If you die, you have two lives. If you lose both of them, you start over from the beginning. And when that happens, because something totally out of my control happens, that felt bad. But then I remembered this is a game with a story and the developer is trying to tell you like, Hey, maybe take a break from the card game, check out some of this other stuff. And it's a little bit like strong, like they're assuming that the player is going to figure that out. And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, uh, they, there's a very strong hint that I just didn't grasp. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you about it in the spoiler section, but there was one, but, uh, these, once I realized that these are, it's not so much me and this other player playing by the same rules in a match of cards. Each battle is a puzzle. Sometimes they're going to give you one you can't win because they want you to get up and check out some of the other stuff. We'll talk about that stuff in a little bit. But that was one little like frustrating thing that I just had to kind of think my way through, I guess. Yeah, I, I definitely, I had a, I have to think back now because it's been a year since that first playthrough. Mm-hmm. But I remember being frustrated by this game a bunch. It was still my game of the year afterwards, but there were moments where I was like angry with the game steamrollering me or with like having to think laterally in a way that I felt maybe wasn't quite flagged. But like you say, once you kind of get there, you're like, Oh, that's what I should have been doing. Mm -hmm. Um, it does, it trusts the player to figure it out. Um, and so you do have to be quite active in. Uh, looking around and using everything that is available to you to get through the game. Yeah. I like that trusting the player, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> there is strong tutorialization and getting your cards down and learning the rules. But at the same time, the game uh, definitely 
is capable of bullying you. Yeah. Um, and you are playing someone who is really trying to mess with you. Um, mm -hmm. and so it might not seem fair sometimes. And sometimes it's not fair. Like it's not made to be yeah. balanced. Sometimes you're dealt a hand that yeah. you're going to die. And that's just how it is. Yep. You know, we always want game developers to trust us more as players. And then sometimes when they do trust me, uh, I feel like they trust me too much because I uh, can be kind of bullheaded sometimes and like not really think my way through those situations. And I had several of those in this like kind of card game in inscription. But then, like I said, once I was like, oh, right, there are other things I could be doing right now. That's when it all kind of clicked uh, most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think we were absolutely on the same page there. Um, I always say I want the devs to trust me and to let me find my way through the game. And then if they even give me a little bit of freedom and I miss something, I'm like, ugh, ugh, this sucks. Why didn't they yeah. tell me about that? <laughs> Why would you trust me? <laughs> Why, of would all you trust people? Me? Why would you trust me? Exactly. <laughs> but there is some cool stuff as well that adds on to the mechanics of this, right? So as you're going over the board, like like in mm -hmm. Slay the Spire, some, some squares give you a new card. Some squares are a battle. Some squares are an encounter of some kind. Um, and I like, I like the ones in, in this card game. Um, I thought that there's only a handful of them, right? But for yeah. example, the campfire where you rock up there and there's a bunch of hungry little wooden pieces sitting opposite this fire and they say, let your animal sit by the fire. It will get more powerful. Mm -hmm. And so you drop your card down there and like it will get like a couple, a uh, little buff on it for the rest of that run. Yeah. But if you leave it there too long, doesn't always go well. And then there is like a, no ways to get cards for example um there's the creature in the cave where there's just some eyes looking out from a cave um and it does a test it's like can you draw four cards that have more than four blood and if you pass you get a card if you don't you get nothing and then there are ways mm -hmm. to get rid of cards like the classic deck builder style where you can yeah. just plain kill a card and take it out of your deck or you can um sacrifice that card and pull one element of it and plug it onto another card in a really gruesome kind of way. Yeah. So there's lots of nice little things that keep the runs fresh, um, even despite the combat being quite varied and the encounters being quite varied based on enemy type and amount and that kind of thing and obstacles on the board. There's lots of nice ways for you to build up and beef up your deck and to really feel that yeah. each run is fresh. Even even 20 hours later, Um there's a lot of life in this card game somehow. For something that is so lean, there's just lots of um, latitude for it to feel different and to understand it more and to have different results yeah. on the board and that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. One of those things you mentioned it is uh, kind of taking one element from a card and taking it to another. Those are the sigils. And this is kind of the added layer of strategy on top of the blood and the bones and you know the attack power and stuff are these sigils so some cards will have these special properties uh, denoted by a sigil um, some of them are changing where your attacks are directed some of them add poison which kills the opposing card in one hit uh, some of them make your cards attack aerially so like you won't attack the card in front of you you'll do direct damage to the opposing player um, and part of the deck building strategy is that one of these kind of nodes on the map lets you take a sigil from a card and put it on another card. You'll destroy the old card, but you'll get to move a sigil. And this was one of the systems that once I figured this out, once I figured out that this is the key to building a deck that's going to help you win, that's when the game unlocked for me. Because you get a lot of cards that are shit cards with great sigils. 
and you get a lot of cards that are great cards with no sigils. So once I figured out like, Hey, this, uh, what's it called? The, the snake, the poison snake, uh, the um, rattler. Is it no, adder. not the rattler, adder. the other one, the, the adder. Yeah. yeah the adder. The adder has poison, but it, it's very weak. It'll die in one hit against almost pretty. I think it only has one. Yeah, HP. It does. Like a, so it's like it's a not the most useful card. Yeah. Yeah. Not the most useful card. Once I figured out like, Hey, just take that poison, put it on something that has a lot more HP. Boom. The, the kind of deck building strategy, like totally unlocked for me. And this became the thing in my head as I was moving through, like picking up cards, like maybe this card's not very good, but it has a good sigil. And I know there's going to be a transfer point somewhere on this map. Right. Um, I, I do think that as a card game, there, this is a little bit like a puzzle to be unlocked. Um, and yeah. the pieces of the puzzle can be found in the mechanics, which is really interesting. That's not like Slay the Spire, which is meant to be played eternally and endlessly on this wheel where you just keep going, mm-hmm. you do another run, maybe <laughs> I can keep going, maybe, and I'm, and I still am. I still sometimes pick that game up. This one is, is like you are, you are playing cards. It's for sure a card game, but the, the elements of story and progression and unlocking, um, give it this linearity as well, uh, which is really interesting. So it takes the best bits from card games and the intrigue and the, the satisfaction of figuring it out but it plugs it into another game's structure in a way. Yeah, totally. So when you're kind of building these decks and I just wanted to kind of talk about deck builders as a whole uh, right now. So you, you have some experience playing Slay the Spire and some others. Um, I, I really like deck building games, uh, Slay the Spire, Monster Train. I just did an episode on the Pokemon trading card game. The uh, There are others, SteamWorld Quest. Uh, they're fun games, but... There's an element of like strategy that goes above my head a lot of times trying to, as people say, break these games and making broken builds. When I beat Slay the Spire, it is often kind of a happy accident, and I'm not sure how I developed this deck that synergizes so well. I remember a couple times when I was definitely like, I'm going to make a great shiv deck and it worked in slay the spire. But a lot of times if I beat it, I'm like, huh, that's cool. I don't really know how I got here, but that's cool. And in this game, every time I beat this kind of campaign, I knew exactly how I beat it. The strategy, the choices were all mine and it felt really, really good uh, to get to the end and have these cards that I've kind of Frankenstein together turn out to be the reason I win. It's a great feeling. I love it. Absolutely agree. Even when the game does bully you and steamroll you and play tricks on you and lie to you, <laughs> like it is possible to yeah. just do really well at it and to, to really, to, to learn it. And so that's a, a clever piece of design. You could say there. like, it's a game that does, it makes you feel like it's intimidating you sometimes, but at the same time, mm-hmm. all the pieces are available for you to do well over time, you know? Yeah. It, this isn't a game either where you need to play, certain, you know, you don't need to play a certain number of runs and score a number of points to unlock the next three guard, three cards to be introduced into the pool. It's not like that. I think pretty much everything is available from the beginning. Maybe as you have to get further into the maps for some cards to start being introduced, but it's not like you're scoring points to fill bars to unlock and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's quite natural the way that happens. I'm still like in this in the my little warm up for this show. I played six hours of the game, 
and I'm still seeing new cards just slide into the deck sometimes that make that make the game grow a little. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it does a lot to keep you interested. Yeah. Anything else about the card game that we we think we need to mention before uh, kind of talking about the the rest of it before spoilers? I think that we've kind of tiptoed up to the line, and everything beyond here pretty much is spoilers. I mean, even describing yeah. <laughs> some of the mechanical workings of the card game is um yeah. is getting super close there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess just to uh, to round off talking about the card game, it is really fun, and there is a version of there is a kind of mode called Casey's Mod again that is just the card game. And it's fun. I, I've had a good time going through it, and I feel the same good feelings about constructing my deck and editing cards in the ways that you can and stuff like that. It, it's really fun. This is a, this is a. I don't, th- I don't know if I'm gonna like replay the whole game, but I do go back and like, you know, I have 30 minutes. I'll play a round of Casey's Mod. It's mm. fun. Yeah, I th- I've got a feeling that Daniel Mullins himself didn't quite realize how fun it was. Like he intended you yeah. to play the game his way which is as a linear story game that's based around cards. Um, and then when there was after, after there was like a demand, he said, he said when inscription came out that there was never going to be, um, a mod where you could just keep playing cards, but the demand was such mm-hmm. and it sold a million copies super fast. And then he was like, Oh, people yeah. really fucking love this card game. I think I'm going to have to do this. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. And then Casey's mod came along. So, um, I think the card game is maybe even better than intended. <laughs> Yeah, which is, it's a nice, nice when it works out that way and not the opposite, right? Right. So the other part of the uh, kind of gameplay puzzle here is that you're in this cabin, you're seated at a table playing through these maps, but you can stand up. And they tell you this very early on in the game. Uh, You can stand up and walk around and there is stuff in the cabin. And I'm not going to say exactly what's there, but you have a bunch of escape room type puzzles, uh, things to do around the cabin. And I really like the flavor of doing this because I always felt like I was trespassing, like I was doing, I was being bad in school and the teacher was watching me, you know, because uh, you, you look over and you see those glowing eyes. They're looking right at you. And the first time I turned around and saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Let me sit back down. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, but you have stuff to explore around the cabin. Um, I don't want to go too deep into this, uh, but there is stuff to do. They are uh, puzzles. And they range from very easy to uh, I had to look up a guide to solve them. But they are important. You do, uh, you should get up and explore all of these. Yeah, it's kind of cool in that, like, I guess if you, if you were to look at the cabin from the top, it would be a grid um, with the table taking up two spaces and then your seat taking mm-hmm. up one and then just six other spaces. And that's the whole cabin. And so you use yeah. WASD to just stand up, walk and turn. Um, and so there are like, you know, uh, that means that there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven walls that you can look at, depending on where you're standing and turning. 
And there's stuff in there you find in cabins, you know, some stones, some skulls, the kind of things people pick up yeah. on hikes, things that you can poke, a little <laughs> globe to spin, yeah. you know, and then there's also some actual quite clearly meant to be further investigated stuff as well. Yeah. And those things um, kind of slowly unlock like escape room puzzle style, uh, like where you'll you'll need to solve one thing in order to solve the next thing, and then you'll need to solve that in order to solve the next thing. And so just a reminder for anyone who's going to pick this up for the first time, don't forget about those. Uh, you do need to do them. And so if you're hitting a brick wall in the card game, get up and go check out that stuff. And that might just be what you need to do. Absolutely. And it's, it's nice to, you know, in card games, sometimes you spend a lot of time looking at the surface you're playing cards onto or the, the UI or whatever. It's nice in this game that mm-hmm. it gives you the feel that you're playing in a room, in a space against a person. It's just a super yeah. different vibe to any other card game I've played. Most of the time the, you're playing against the computer, you know, um, and you, yeah. you can't, there's no further world there. That's, that's your world. Your world is this card game. You uh-huh. play against the invisible computer with the invisible rules. Um, and in this card game, it feels a little more open. It's an extra element. It adds to that thick mood that we've been talking about and the feeling of being yeah. in a place like somewhere far from home, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that that mood extends to like the stuff that's around the cabin. Some of it, like you said, is, you know, there's a clock because you got to know what time it is. There's some weird shit in the cabin too, though. I'm not going to say what it is, but there's some weird shit. Uh, so a lot of times I would get up and I'd be like, I don't know what that is. I don't know if I should touch it. Like, is this guy going to yell at me if I start touching this stuff? Um, it's really, I really felt like I was in school being bad again when I was walking around doing this. It's a really good plays into like the kind of story that's unfolding. And like we said, the mood and everything. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot to like about this just right from the start. Yeah. So let's kind of get into kind of wrap up thoughts, kind of top down about inscription. And the question I always ask here is who would you recommend this game to? So start with you, John. What do you think? Okay. So straight off the top of my head, people that like weird games, if you like the Kentucky Route Zeros and Disco Elysiums of this world, stuff that's trying to show you something, something, something uh, that's ambitious or in some way leaning in that direction, definitely try it. Mm -hmm. If you're a person that likes card games, if you like Slay the Spire, if you like Iris the Giant, if you like Monster Train, etc., Griftlands even, that sort of thing, then definitely try it. If you are someone that doesn't like card games or arty games, definitely try it. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. I think the biggest group of people I would recommend this to is people who like card games, but are kind of getting sick of the roguelike deck builder uh, since we've had a big boom of those in the last five years, uh, I started, even my eyes start to glaze over as much as I love this, uh, as much as I love card games. When I see another indie reveal trailer and it's like the newest roguelike deck builder, I'm like, ah, oh, okay. If you're getting that feeling, try inscription because there's a lot more there and it's a good card game. The only person I would really not recommend this to is if you just fucking hate cards and you, you're not going to be able to get past that. This is a card game. There's no getting around it. But I think you're right, John. There is a lot for a lot of different kind of gamer psychographics here. Uh, If you like weird stuff, this game's weird. Um, If you like things that go into the unexpected, that's where this game goes. So yeah, pretty easy recommendation with the one caveat that at the end of the day, it is a card game. So 
Um, little housekeeping here before we get into spoiler time. Um, John, where can people find gaming in the wild? Um, I'm on all the social media as gaming in the wild. I'm on Twitter where I'm talking all the time. Um, you can find the podcast at gaminginthewild.com where there are links for Spotify and iTunes to listen to the show links to all my social media. I sometimes stream on Twitch. I do the occasional video. Um, I'll be making one for my games of the year this year on YouTube. So you can find me basically everywhere. But um, Twitter is the place that I talk and gaminginthewild.com is the place where you can find the podcast. And again, a a hearty recommendation from me for people to check out Gaming in the Wild. Um, If you value video games as an art form as much as the two of us do, you're going to find stuff that you like uh, in Gaming in the Wild. And props to you, always say this to my solo podcasting people, props to you for making a solo show uh, entertaining and uh, informative. It, it is not easy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So time to talk about me uh, for Tales from the Backlog again. Oh, no. Before I talk about me, check down in the show notes again for links to gaming in the wild and related social media. Yeah. Okay. Now time to talk about me. So uh, for Tales from the Backlog, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, consider leaving a rating and review. If you would like to join the Discord server and talk uh, about Inscription with heavy spoiler bars, I imagine, for people who haven't played, but you want to talk about Inscription, other games, movies, life, etc., that's the place to do it. Consider supporting on Patreon if you like what I'm doing and consider listening to a top three podcast, which is my other show, doing top three lists. If we did top three card games, I feel like Inscription would probably be on there. So, John and I are going to take a break. When we come back, it's time for spoilers for Inscription. right john and i are back and it's time to talk spoilers for inscription and spoiler section in this one's going to be pretty much just a straight walk through how the game goes uh so i am gonna tell you now that sometimes if you get spoiled on games it's not a huge deal because i think you can get the same impact uh experiencing it for yourself even if you know what's coming i don't think this is one of those games though so if you're still listening um, I'm going to give clear like demarcation lines between the acts in this game, so you can stop listening if you like if you're kind of working through it. Uh, let's like let's say you're almost done with Act One. I'm going to tell you when we're done talking about Act One, and uh, yeah, okay. So there we go. Little mini spoiler breaks here, just like we did with Near Automata. Uh, same type of deal. So Act One. Uh, inside chapter one. So we're kind of um, just trying to beat Leshy. That's his name, uh, Leshy, the Leshen, uh, which is a mythological creature that I first learned about when playing the Witcher. So cool to see one uh, in the game here. And uh, so you're trying to beat Leshy. And as you go through here, things just slowly start to get weirder and weirder. And I think the first thing that happens is when your cards start talking to you, right? <laughs> right. This was... 
this was the moment really, isn't it? It's like, okay, this is more. So you pick up this stoke mm-hmm. card, um, that you have to, you have to, do you have to break out the stoke card first? No, I, no, it's part of your starting four. It's part of your starting four. So yeah, you start with this stoke card and then where it says stoke at the top, just above it's like health and attack and this little pen, this little drawing of the stoke. It's like, we can get out of here. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. The stoke card is telling me like, it's giving me like a, there's a talking card here. There's just a talking card here. Yeah. Why is that here? <laughs> So like you may, if you buy inscription totally blind, right? And you think it's just a card game. I mean, it is a card game, but if you think that this cabin and the cards is all there is, this is your first clue that like, oh, some shit's going on here. So the stoat starts talking to you. I like the stoat's attitude too throughout as you play, like when you're going to sacrifice the stoat, it's like, oh, come on, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it thanks you if you don't. It's like, hey, man, <laughs> thanks for doing me a solid and not sacrificing me. <laughs> yeah. And if you uh, if you use the stoat in any of those kind of events around, like you want to transfer a sigil onto it or something, it's like, all right, I guess if we have to. Actually, I think like a couple of the other ones are a little more reticent. Like a couple of the other talking cards are like, they don't want you to interfere with them too much but the stoat was actually like when you when you go to sacrifice something for a sigil it's like pick me <laughs> it wants power mm-hmm. it's like such a little weirdo <laughs> yeah yeah good a uh, good little personality on the stoat um and then you also have to break out a couple of other cards uh, there's a stink bug i think you get this throughout like just playing the game you'll just find it as a reward i felt like that was one of the escape room ones um, was it? I think I it was the like the second an save, and then the wolf okay. came out of the. Is this? Are we spoiling? Are we spoiling where these cards yeah, come from now? These are Act One spoilers. Okay, yeah. so the the the, the, uh, the caged wolf comes out of a, a complex puzzle that involves the clock. Yeah, um, and there's a couple of you know the puzzles we talked about, and we skated around because we don't want to spoil the game for anyone. And if we are spoiling you right now, get out of this podcast. Go out, go on, get out of here. But um, yeah, the, the stink play bug. the game. <laughs> yeah, play, go play it. But the stink bug is in the sliding puzzle. So there's this weird gold sliding puzzles on the wall there. Yeah. Um, that are representations of the card game um, with sliders. Yeah. So you can kind of move squares up and down in a simulation, like a, a sort of board game version of it, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. And if you kind of correctly solve the puzzle, which is to kill the opponent in one go. Yeah. So you move your little sliding gold things around. You hit the bell, um, the number goes up, and it's like, okay, you only got four. You have to move them around a little more, try and solve the puzzle. And then if you hit the bell and it goes up to five, then the safe will open, and you'll get cool extra cards, basically. And I think yeah. a few of those are just mechanically interesting cards, like the beehive, uh, the uh, the mother ant, which can be uh-huh. very powerful, and will spit ant cards into your hand constantly. Um, but one of them mm-hmm. is the stink bug, and that's another talking card. So you start getting this weird hand of cards that are somehow special compared to all of the animal cards. And they're trying to give you tips. They're like, we can, this guy is insane. We can get out of here. And so your hand of cards is trying to talk you through like, um, escaping from the clutches of Leshy, who is just insisting that Uh you play cards with him forever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, what a motivation for, uh, for a, a, an antagonist it's it's not really an evil like i'm gonna you're here because i want to kill you and eat you it's just no we're gonna play cards forever right and leshy's leshy's character evolves throughout act one and throughout the game doesn't it really i mean i'm not going to go past mm-hmm. that um that important spoiler wall that we still have up but in in act one like leshy starts as macabre and creepy 
um, and those those white eyes staring at you. Um, he wears masks sometimes. He's definitely unhinged. Um, but the more yeah. the more that you play, you get more of a sense of who Leshy is in a really cool way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, so those slide puzzles were, I think I got the first two by myself. They really require like a mastery of what the sigils do and stuff almost beyond like the mastery you need to beat the game. <laughs> almost the last one was so hard. I could not do it. I had to look up the solution and that actually your reward inside the last one, which I believe is the squirrel totem, um, is yes. what helped me beat the game. So I, I needed that, but it was just, it was really hard. Yeah. I beat the first two pretty fast. And then the last one I was getting four out of five, could not figure out the last bit. And I trial and errored it. Basically I was just moving things around, yeah. hitting the bell, moving them around, hitting the bell. I just trial and errored it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't crack the puzzle. I brute forced that one. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Uh, so yeah, that, that, uh, Squirrel Totem is what helped me kind of get through it. But before we talk about beating Leshy, uh, let's talk a little bit about the bosses in Act 1 because of the bosses um, in the other acts, I think that the bosses in Act 1 are the most fun. Uh, So you have the Prospector. They all have like, you know, I said before that the combat, you know, matches are like little puzzles and the bosses are definitely puzzles. You got to figure out what the boss is doing and uh, counter. So the prospector starts out with a pretty standard thing, except he has a, a pack mule that's sitting on top of an envelope of cards. And if you kill the pack mule, you get those cards, uh, which is going to be really helpful because once you beat uh, the first round, the bosses all have two lives. So you have to beat them twice. Uh, once you beat round one of the prospector, he he yells, there's gold in them cards. And then he turns all your cards to gold. Uh, really good uh, theming to him. Um, I like that. Bit of a shock when that happens though, right? It's like, it's like, Oh yeah. When, Cause you've been used to playing these cards, playing by the rules. And then the game is just like, Nope, no more. The rules yeah. <laughs> you thought you knew are gone. Your cards are now being smashed into gold and all your, all your most powerful cards are down on the table. Cause that's how you play. Right. You get your powerful cards down. And then the game is like, I'm just going to sweep all those away. What have you got? Like it's such uh-huh. a slap in the face from the game. I was shocked the first time that happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And I was shocked by what all three bosses do to you, uh, yeah. kind of in between phases. And I think um, it's also helped so, by the masks, right? Sorry to cut you off, but like, yeah. Cause when you, when Leshy is DMing for you, he's sitting opposite, you barely see him. He's like sometimes vaguely visible, mm-hmm. but then when the bosses come, he's DMing the bosses. So he puts on a mask. So for the prospector, he puts on this grotesque mask with a carved wooden <laughs> beard and he leans in yeah. and he's holding like a, a pickaxe. And so, and suddenly the music ramps up and it's like drums and chanting. And so, you know, it gets you, um, it's like exciting. Like it's like, but it's a real bus encounter. And so not only do you get like the changing the rules and messing with you on purpose, but you get like Leshy's kind of, um, DMing the boss to you. Mm -hmm. Um, so cool. They, they really feel like something, you know? Yeah, it is. And those masks are great. All three of them are excellent. Uh, and the, you know, I think the, like the wood carver that you meet um, through those events, all the masks that he puts on to role play these different characters are really, really good. Uh, so the prospector turns all your cards to gold uh, in between, you know, round one and two. So kind of my strategy is because he doesn't throw out a bunch of good cards in round one. So it's just kind of like do what you can to get through round one. And then 
the good thing about your cards being turned to gold is that the opposing cards have to destroy the gold before they can do damage to you. So you do get a turn or two to kind of like formulate a new strategy yeah, on the fly. Pull some squirrels and, you, and think about your life choices. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you got the uh, the pack mule, then that really helps you set up uh, round two uh, pretty well. So I enjoy the prospector. The next one's the angler. Um, and his gimmick is that sometimes he will use his fish hook item and uh, he will steal one of your cards. And it's they show you which one he's going to take with a little hook icon over it. And the key there is he will steal whatever the last card you play is. So just make sure the last one you play is a squirrel and it's not so bad, but that did take me a few rounds uh, to figure out. Yeah. And he's creepy, man. Like the prospector is this insane, like his face is just this really like, um, oversized, bulging, grotesque angler face. And he's leaning into Uh you. Um, and like (laughs) when he steals your card, he says, go fish. And then he hovers his hook over the board. And he wants the freshest fish that you have available, so he's going to take the last card you played, but it does take a moment. It's another it's another puzzle inside the puzzle. Yeah. Each boss is a puzzle inside the puzzle. And then uh, round two, all of his um, kind of chum bucket cards, I think, turn into great white sharks, which are really powerful cards, so you have to be ready for that. I definitely got got the first time I made it to that. I was like, what the fuck, sharks? Okay. Um, once you beat him though, you get that fish hook item and it's really good. It's, it can turn the tide of almost any match you use it in. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, I actually bounced off a lot of these bosses a few times, um, in my first playthrough in the playthrough that I'm doing now, I sailed through them pretty easily because I knew the puzzle, Yeah, which is another, like it leans into my theory that this is more of a story puzzle game with a card mechanics Mm -hmm. than a card game with story mechanics. If you know what I mean? I don't know if that's so interesting as a conversation, like the classification of the game. But I do think it's part of what makes this game interesting is that the formulation of it in that way. Yeah. Cause these boss fights, like we said, they are definitely puzzles using cards. It's like, um, if you, if any, if you, John or anyone listening has played Thronebreaker, which is the Witcher card game, that's what that is. It's, it, it, it's marketed as Gwent with a story, but it's not. It's puzzles using kind of what you know about Gwent. So, and that's kind of what this is like. Mm-hmm. I haven't played yeah. that one. I'm, I'm going to play Witcher 3 when the next gen drops. So maybe my Gwent time is coming. <laughs> I uh, I hope you enjoy Gwent as much as I did. I had a great time. Okay. If I played that game for 100 hours, 20 of it was playing Gwent. So <laughs> uh, the last boss is the... Um, the trapper and the trader, which you've been meeting throughout the game. Uh, they're kind of a merchant where you can uh, buy new cards basically. And we didn't talk about this, but it's a really interesting mechanic to have you buy pelts with your teeth, your extra teeth. And then you have to hold on to those pelts and they come up when you draw cards at inconvenient times. And if you can persist until you get a chance to sell those pelts for new cards, it's, it's really worth it. But it can be a real downer when you need a good card and you draw a pelt and it's like, fuck, I needed, you know, I needed something that can help me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, when you're waiting for your death card or your, 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 your bear or whatever that is you need to play and you get the wolf pelt that you know is going to be valuable later, sometimes I had to sacrifice it and I had to drop a pelt on the board to stop me from taking the final hit, you know, and that's just a pain because you know that you can sell them later and it's going to be good for you yeah it's a funny it's a funny little plot twist that the trapper and trader are like 
as friendly faces as any faces get in this game. They're still grotesque, hacked out wooden masks, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that you do meet them on your playthrough and they try to help you and they talk to you. And then all of a sudden, plot twist, it's a double boss. Yeah. And uh, in Casey's mod, I, I don't remember if this comes up in the main game, but sometimes there'll be the second boss that you fight. It might come up in the main game where they shuffle them a little bit. And if you beat them, then their kind of trading post will be empty uh, on the board. (laughs) So then I think your character says like, well, better not buy more than I can afford. You know, I'm on the honor system here. So, right. Yeah. Kind of interesting though. So their gimmick is the first round. They have all these traps that when you kill the trap, it will kill whatever card killed them. They're bear traps. Um, and some of them can jump and catch like aerial attacks. It's a really interesting thing. And then uh, as those traps kill your cards, they get turned into pelts. And then after or between the rounds, you can sell the pelts. It'll. I really like this. They fill their side of the table with other creatures. And however many pelts you have, you can take that many of those cards. But whatever the cards you leave, those will be the cards you have to fight. So there's some strategy in choosing cards that you can use, you know, but also I need to, if there's a like, um, what's the card that's like, it needs four blood, but it does like nine damage, you know? I think that's the Uralei, which I have interpreted as a Yeti. Right. The, yeah. So if you see one of those, it's like, I don't think I can use that, but I definitely don't want to fight that thing. So I better pay for that. It's a really interesting little strategy just for one little round here. Yeah. Absolutely love that all three bosses subvert the rules of the game and demand that you get creative and introduce um, a new little puzzle for you to solve. Um, and they also just have so much character and atmosphere, the way they look. Like when you come to the angler, there are hooks in the background of uh, Leshy just going up and down. Like a, It's like a crazy ghost train ride. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I found the bosses to be really effective and really, like they actually like surprised me a little bit in this game. It's the way that the game amps everything up. Like the music, the look of it, the masks, it's just, uh, and the mechanics as well. These mm-hmm. are super fun boss encounters. Yeah. Yeah. I had a good time. I think you said like you got beat by most of the bosses a couple times while you're figuring them out. And that was my experience too. And then after I figured them out, they're still not easy. Like if your deck's not good enough, you you'll lose. Like I, I played a round of Casey's mod this morning and I lost against the, the trapper. They just, they had too many good cards and I, I chose wisely or I chose poorly, I suppose, but they're still not easy. They do require you to have a good deck. Um, but once you figure out their gimmick, it is a nice bit of strategy uh, for sure. So um, next thing, I guess, on the train to beating Leshy is talking about death cards. And this is another stop on the like kind of slowly unfolding the story of this game to you is uh, learning about what death cards are. So we said in the non-spoiler part, you can die and you have to restart, but we didn't say what happens when you die, is you get taken to a back room and uh, Leshy takes your picture and that's what kills you. And your kind of soul is put into this death card. And you get to pick a couple of attributes from cards in your deck. So I'll give you like three cards and say, Pick the one that you want the attack value to transfer. Pick the one that you want the health to transfer, and then pick one for a sigil. And this starts out being okay as you go through, 
your first couple death cards are probably not going to be the most effective. But as you get better cards, as you go on, and as you start to maybe even just see that Yeti and think like, I can't use this, but maybe it'll come up during death card creation, and then I'll be set for the next round. Uh, Another just little layer of strategy that was very cool. Yeah, and and you, um, I think one of the things that you pick as well is the cost to play it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so the, the the stumbling block with the Yeti is that it costs four blood, which means you have to kill all your cards or have a bunch of squirrels. And so getting that on the board's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. But I think I got it down one time as my death card where I had eight aggression, eight health, free to get on the board. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and maybe like the Mantis God sigil. So Jeez. it was like... It was the it was the destroyer of cards, free to play, mm-hmm. twenty four damage, an absolute monster. So death cards, I think you know, um, it's we've talked a little bit about how beating this game is about breaking this game, and we talked about broken builds. Yeah, and uh, the death card is like the easiest main line to breaking the game, isn't it? You get the overpowered death card, and when it comes into your hand, you're like, oh yeah, this is it. Yeah, definitely was able to make a couple of those death cards, like you just said, that can do, you know, six to 10 damage, free to play on the board. Great. Um, A couple others where like, cause you get to pick a sigil too. So a couple others that had that like Mantis God triple strike with poison. um, If you can transfer one of those on later in the game. And that's, that's basically like an automatic win. Like you, you'll win the entire round with that card. Um, So like, the game starts out pretty difficult um, because it wants you to die a bunch and explore around the cabin, do the escape rooms, uh, try out different strategies and stuff. But you do get to a point where you have so many tools available to you that like, like we said, you'll break this game wide open. And I said this before, but I was the one who designed that death card. I was the one who transferred those sigils. These are all my choices and they're simple choices, but it makes you feel great when you just get that unbeatable card that does 24 damage right yeah it's insane it's an absolute pleasure there's something nice about breaking games and there's something nice about you know when you get like an op bug or something um it feels a little like that it feels like something about the way this has been put together wants you to feel that joy of feeling like you've hacked the system yeah even though the system has been designed to be hacked yeah exactly and there are a lot like i said before there are a lot of deck building games that are designed to be broken, but there are so many interlocking systems that I, I often break it by accident or don't break it at all. But in this game, it's, it's so simple, but there's so many avenues that you have. Uh, it's really, really nice. So I kind of mentioned the death cards and I assume the death cards play into whenever we're able to beat Leshy. So I just want to turn it over to you, John, tell me about a couple of like crazy builds or crazy cards that you had that helped you beat Leshy? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge in the end for getting Leshy for me was keeping a small deck and having the good cards come up fast. Mm-hmm. You know, like you've said to me um, on chat, like the idea of keeping a small deck is a classic deck builder strategy. And when you've got cards that are so overpowered, um, you just need to get them fast. You're basically clinging on until they come up in your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the some of the systems that I got that were just unbelievably good like there was a card called the amalgam i didn't remember it from my first playthrough maybe i didn't use it the first mm-hmm. time around or i didn't pick it 
because it doesn't look that great when you see it. Like sometimes you get three choices of a card to pick and you weigh it up and you're like, hmm, I know that this bear is good. Yeah. And this is in weird insect. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. But I, th- I picked up the Amalgam this time around um, and it gets the Immortal Sigil. So if you play it, then it just reappears in your hand. It's, it's not even the Immortal one. It's something else. It's like as soon as you play it, it comes back into your hand. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have to die to come back into your deck. As soon as you play it, it comes back into your hand. Mm-hmm. So you just get another amalgam. Um, and combining <laughs> that with some of the other, um, you know, squirrel things that we're going to talk about, some yeah. of the squirrel, the game breaking squirrel stuff, that just means that you can get that, you can get three of those down in your first go, um, and mm-hmm. win around. And then I think that maybe the best build I ever got against Leshy was using the mycologists, um, who, if you have two of the same card, will um they're like this mad two-faced mask character that Leshy plays for you <laughs> and they'll take your two cards if you've got two of the same one somehow mm-hmm. and you look away from the table blood splatters over the table as they saw the cards in half yeah and then they put them together and you get a double powered card with a nasty scar down the middle of it because it's mm-hmm. like this franken card <laughs> and that's the time that i did that with amalgam that meant that i could put down infinite amalgams using some other broken mechanics and they were doing six damage and they had six health and the damage was going in three directions. So that's just three times 18 every turn. Jeez. Um, so that, that like is beyond broken build. You're just yeah. steamrollering everything that lies before you at that point. But then again, if the amalgam doesn't come up in your hand, then you're playing sparrows, you know, you're playing yeah. your other cards. So you really have to, to wait for that one to come into the hand. But that, that was maybe my favorite. Yeah. Um, I also got like a insane, I think I described the insane death card which was some some super high attack going in three directions and no, none to play. It was Yeti, Mantis Lord, and uh, Zero Blood to play. And that was just, you just play that card, sit back, and then watch the game ends. Yeah, Like basically. every time. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's not just that the game allows you to break it. It's that there is a sense of glee mm-hmm. in just how broken the game um, can, the systems can be. And I love that the design of the game allows you to feel that just yeah. such pleasure in having such powerful cards that just wipe everything out. Yeah, absolutely. Because for a little while through the game, before you figure this stuff out, you are scratching and clawing for your victories, I feel like. And then once you do get far enough where those cards start to open up and you start to be able to make these unbeatable death cards or figure out other strategies, there is a sense of like, I did this, I made it. This is this is my victory. So really good. Um, so we talked about that squirrel totem. This was what unlocked the game for me basically. And my strategy still remained, you know, try to make a good death card, try to transfer sigils in appropriate ways, but find a good bottom for that squirrel head totem. Um, because the right one will just trivialize this game. And again, this is not hidden. This is, you get a squirrel head, as a reward for doing an escape room puzzle that you should be doing anyway. So they want you to get this. So I had one run where the squirrels had the sigil where they uh, just come back to life. As soon as they're dead, you sacrifice it and it pops right back in your hand, which means any card you want, just play anything. It doesn't matter. You, you do anything you want. You win on turn one every time. And that was fun. I had a great time figuring that out. Uh, A couple others, where uh, the squirrels gave three blood when they were sacrificed, which basically means the same thing. You can play almost any card on any turn. 
and these are not difficult to find. All you have to do is like you get your squirrel head and then just make a point of emphasis to go to the totem, you know, the, the, the carver, get a totem base. And then that kind of defines the rest of your run. If you get a good one. Yeah, this is, this is like a hidden in plain sight thing. It's, it's, it's right there in front of you the whole time, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have this weird squirrel head. You're not quite sure what it's for, but then sometimes when you're going through a run, you will arrive at this carver square where a weird character appears out of the bushes and she's like trading off, trading off, um, totem bottoms with you. So it's like an animal that has a, a sigil on its chest. There are different options for that. Some of them are rubbish. Like if you get the airborne one and if you, if you make your squirrels airborne, like that doesn't do anything. Like (laughs) they don't have any attack. So the first time, this is somewhere where I tripped up in my first playthrough. Actually, it was like I had kind of discounted this, the, um, the totems as being useful because I tried out a couple and they did nothing. Yeah. Um, and then I think I needed a push from a friend to actually get to that. They were like, I was bashing my head against the wall and they were like, you really need to go back to that carver and experiment a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was that I got the field mouse one, which is every time you play a field mouse, you get another field mouse. So it's like you play a squirrel, you get a squirrel, you play a squirrel, you get a squirrel. Mm-hmm. And it, that, that was ultimately, um, having infinite squirrels just is, um, it's a, a absolutely game-breaking. And then when you combine that with cards that come back into your hand, like infinite um, infinite amalgam with infinite squirrels, you can just put down four amalgam straight away. Um, yeah. and so, but it's interesting the way that the escape room puzzle and the card game feed into each other, right? Yeah. So if you're going through your escape room puzzles, you'll find something that you can then use on the board. And if you're on the board, you'll find, you'll get things that you can then use in the escape room. And so the whole thing is very interconnected as a, mm-hmm. you have to do both to get through the game. Yeah. My experience with those totems was kind of similar to you. Like before I got the squirrel head, I always, you know, if I had to go to a totem place, I would, but it would, because the, the way those work is it, it depends on what type of animal it is. And there's enough types that like, in order for your totems to be really good, you need to have a deck that's mostly the same type you know, all beasts or all birds or something like that. And it just never worked out that way for me. So the totems were always just kind of like a little bonus. Like I was playing this morning and I got a totem that made all the beasts uh, stinky. So cards opposite it were less effective. And that was, that was good. It was helpful, but not as helpful as making squirrels, you know, infinitely replenishing. Uh, That's game over right there. So once you get that, I, I had a great time. Uh, my, so I, I ended up beating Leshy three times. Um, I beat, <laughs> you beat him once. Uh, we'll say what happens when you beat him. Uh, you, you, you play against Leshy. Um, he starts to use, uh, a bunch of different cards against you. You beat, is this where he uses, uh, death cards? It's in this match against him, right? It is. And there's also the, the thing that you've been through with the eye as well. Yeah. So you've kind of, you've gotten some, um, You've gotten some information that like when he takes your picture to put you in a card that, that you're starting to learn that he has used the camera to capture the spirits of the animals right. and that the cards contain the spirits of the animals. And so when he takes your picture at the end of a round, he is consigning your soul to a card mm-hmm. and it's a magic camera, right? So you're starting to get this information that Leshy's card game is literally magic cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get that and. Uh, it, it's really cool flavor and, and you start to kind of, as you go through, start thinking about like, okay, the stoats talking to me, 
who was this? You know, it it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't a, an animal that he took a picture of and now suddenly it can talk like there's got to be more to this. Uh, so you start to figure that out. And um, when you get to Leshy the first time uh, he fights you, he uses a bunch of death cards against you. And then you fight the moon, which was really funny. He pulls the moon. He tur- no, he turns around. He takes a picture of the moon and puts it on the board. It takes up the entire board. It has a ton of HP and it hits every card for one damage. So it's not really like hard to beat, but it's very cool. Um, it's oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. Oppressive, cool thematically to literally be fighting against the moon. And when he takes the picture, the moon comes out of the sky. Like he has taken the moon and made it into a card. It's, it's really cool. Um, and he'll also comment on how you defeat the moon. If you use certain strategies, like if you use a stinky card, he'll make a comment about it. It's pretty funny. Um, I killed the moon with poison one time and he was like, Oh, why would you do that to the moon? Like that's, that's not cool. Yeah. Um, I actually, I think I faced off against the moon in my first place through like a few times and again in my recent playthrough. And it was only in my, my recent playthrough that I realized what was going on because mm. I killed the moon the first with one hit yeah, regularly. And I was like, why is that happening? Isn't this like the big bad boss? I'm just murdering it. And it turned out that it was just a poison card. The poison card kills any enemy. The rule is it kills any enemy with one strike mm-hmm. and i was doing that accidentally and just being really confused like <laughs> why is the moon just why is this end boss being taken out in this way yeah but i think that the thing i liked about the moon was that like leshy doesn't want the game to end he's just not like there's something about him like he just loves this game mm-hmm. um and so when you beat him finally he's like i don't want this game to end what else can i do what else can i dm to you how can i make this yeah wilder i'm gonna get the moon out of the sky <laughs> and fight that like go for it you know yeah Anything to keep it going. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, the first time you beat the moon, uh, nothing really happens because you haven't solved the ultimate puzzle of Act 1 uh, yet. So uh, he takes your picture again. You think you won, but not yet. Um, and then this is where you get this kind of little interstitial cutscene of somebody. You've seen cutscenes before of somebody painting um, a couple of times. Now you see one of them painting a knife and you should have, or be very close to unlocking the knife in the cabin through the escape room stuff. And this went right over my head. So I killed Leshy again, got the cutscene again, the picture of a knife. And it just never registered to me. Like he's telling you to use the knife and then win a run. I had to look it up. It had just one of those like boneheaded things where I was like, I just didn't get it. Yeah. I had a few of those in this game too, you know, um, it comes back to that conversation we were having about being unguided and guided and how we all want like the, the, the experience that demands your curiosity to pay off mm-hmm. and for you to really explore and solve. Um, but you know, when I play things like the outer wilds or outer wilds rather, yeah. or, uh, where there, there are some big leaps of logic required for you. For example, the, if anyone's played Outer Wild, there's a puzzle with a quantum moon that you have to solve. It's pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. It's a big piece of lateral thinking. Yeah. I just did not get there. My mind just did not <laughs> grapple onto that one bit. Like yeah. I completely went over my head, fly by. Um, and I consider myself to be a pretty engaged player, but sometimes, um, it's like they toss you the ball and you just miss it. You know what I mean? And, and puzzle games are like that. Sometimes, sometimes when you're playing a puzzle game, like, for example, the pedestrian, 
I felt like in lockstep, like a uh, mental connection with the designer of the puzzles in this game. Some of them are really hard and I got them first time every time. I was like something about the way they think, the mm-hmm. way they're laying this out, I'm getting it. I'm in harmony with this game. Other games like um, that people love sometimes, I will just completely bounce on. My brain is not in harmony with what's being served to me. Um, Inscription, I would say, was pretty close to being like a totally satisfying experience, but like some of those little sticking points, like the squirrel totem trick to break the game and win. Yeah. Um, I think I needed a nudge there. I needed an extra nudge. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's worth saying actually that like there are times in this game where you can feel stuck, but the, the clues are all served up to you. It's just that I think you become very familiar. That's the thing. Like if uh-huh. you've walked around the cabin 10 times, You've seen this knife. It's locked up. You can't get it. You've touched it 10 times probably just Mm -hmm. to see. And so by the time it's necessary in the game, it's become background to you. Mm. Um, And so like you need to kind of look with fresh eyes at what is around you all the time in this game, you know? Yeah. Um, Sometimes literally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The the thing with the knife for me was I I unlocked it before I beat Leshy. So I always had the knife item uh, with me and it, it in hindsight, it's very obvious when they're seeing a dude at an easel painting a picture of a knife. It's very obvious to be like, Dave, use the fucking knife, man. Come on. But I, I just didn't get it. I had to look it up. Um, and then yeah. what made it worse was you have to use the knife before a certain point in your run um, so that you can receive the kind of glass eyeball as a reward. Right. It's worth talking about this, man. It's worth talking about the knife moment and the yeah. pliers moment. We, we, we somehow skipped over those, but like the, the special tools. Those are, yes, special. Uh, the pliers are the first item you get at the beginning of the game and they don't tell you what it does. Um, but it's just like, Hey, this is, uh, you know, here's your pliers. Use them if you feel like it. And I, I did not expect to, uh, take the pliers and rip out one of my own teeth uh in in the first like 10 minutes of playing this game i was like what the fuck am i in for here yeah and <laughs> wow the, like the effect of it so you, you don't know what they're for exactly yeah but you pick you see your hand pick them up you see the pliers come into the mouth of the player come into the camera the sound gets this shrill like you know if you've taken a hit to the head like if you've accidentally like banged your head real hard yeah. and you're just you hear that sound that ringing yeah and then crunch and a flash and a spurt of blood and then it's one tooth that gets dropped onto yeah. the scale Dude. and it's just like just to help you out in the game yeah. <laughs> but you have to like go through that i was i was almost reluctant to use it just because it's like it's pretty powerful it's really <laughs> visceral it's gross yeah. like i mean it's teeth, the most horror yeah teeth torture is is really rough uh in any anything any game any movie whatever so when this happened yeah like i said within the first 10 minutes i was like oh i have a pair of pliers i'll see what that does oh no i oh god and then yeah. from then on like you said the pliers are in case of emergency they're there because like you know it's it's a game whatever your character rips his own tooth out. You didn't rip your own tooth out in real life, but I don't want to see that cutscene play out again. Like that shit's gross. So yeah, it's intense. Uh, and then to the knife. Yeah. Um, so the knife, same type of thing. You cut out, you cut out your own eyeball, uh, with the knife and you plop it down on the scale. And what's great about this though, is half of the screen goes dark, uh, as you've cut out your own eyeball. 
And it's brutal again, man. It is. Like seeing that point coming towards the camera and you, you're like, oh God, here we go yeah. again. And then there it goes, your eyeball plopping onto the scale, like blurred, unless she seems to be happy yeah. that you're doing this. It's like twisted yeah. maniac that you're playing cards with. Yeah. What happens though is like you have to do that before a certain point in your game. Um, because if you do that, then Leshy will open up a box and there's a glass eyeball uh, inside. Yeah, he's phone- he's so funny, man. He gives you a courtesy eye. Yeah. He's like, well, I guess you're <laughs> going to be needing a new eye then. Yeah. And opens up this box with all of these eyeballs rolling around and mm-hmm. it's like, pick one. Yeah. But then one of them is grabs your attention, right? Right. Yeah, one of them's got that neon green on it. Uh, so... You need to pick that one. But the first time I used the knife, it was like I had figured out I need to beat the game after using the knife. So I'll just use the knife in the Leshy fight. But it's too late because you won't get the eyeball. So that didn't right. work. Uh, so that was a little thing. Oh, that's a bummer. That's a real bummer. That's yeah. like, um, that's actually like, that feels like the fact that you could do that and slip up that way is a little um, unkind from the game, actually, because that's that's mm-hmm. important that you do that earlier in the game because you have to right so that that's a way that you could fall through the cracks of this puzzle yeah for sure and i had to after i did that i had to check a guide because i got that cutscene again i beat leshy again i got the cutscene and he's drawing a picture of a knife and i was like what do you want from me i used the knife that's really unlucky man that's really unlucky that you did that that's like uh that's pretty harsh Mm -hmm. but you get that eyeball um you have to get up it'll help you open up a uh clock in there. Yeah, the cool thing with the eyeball is that like this is another thing because the game is starting to evolve at this moment, and yeah. we are getting towards the second spoiler wall, which I'm not going to go beyond it. But like when he does offer you that case of eyes, there is one that has like a green glow, and it mm-hmm. looks different to all the others. It has lines on it. It looks like it's maybe mechanical somehow. It looks like an electric light source or something. It's like it's almost like a science fiction prosthetic eye. It's weird. It's like it doesn't belong in his cabin. That's for sure. But then when you put it in, um, you can see things that you couldn't see before. So you can see splashes of paint. You can see handprints. You can mm-hmm. see um, things that weren't available before. And if you look around the cabin again, you will notice that you now have a combination number um, that's going to allow you to complete this clock puzzle that's been bugging you for the last 10 hours because you're like, mm-hmm. how am I going to get into this <laughs> clock? Like you've gotten into the safe by now. You've gotten into the uh, the sliding block puzzles by now. Maybe the yeah. last big one is the clock. Um, and you can see the little imprints drawn onto the clock of where you have to position the hands. Yeah. The, the clock opens up like a magic safe. And then you get the, the final piece of the puzzle. Right. And it was the, uh, cause you beat Leshy the first time you, like, uh, you can get a hold of his camera and try to pick, take his picture, but there's no film and it doesn't work. Uh, so that's why you have to go beat him again. Inside the clock is a roll of film and that will let you take Leshy's picture. And then that is, kind of getting to the end of act one. Um, and I, I didn't write down exactly when the spoiler warning again, uh, if you, <laughs> before we go on, um, if you have not beaten act one yet, stop listening now. Cause we're going to start talking about how the game really starts taking some hard turns. So thank you for listening. If that's you, I love you. All right. So I forget when exactly the FMVs get introduced. Is it when you beat Leshy the first time or is it, it after is. you take his picture? First time. First time. Right. Okay. So that's what I thought because you you do play through the rest of it knowing that you're from the perspective of uh, the Carter. So the FMVs um, started out cool for me because I didn't know what to expect and steadily got less cool in my opinion as it went. 
Um, and I'm sure we'll get to that once we get into act, uh, three in particular, but, um, you beat Leshy and you get an FMV of a YouTuber, uh, which is a fun kind of like character to have, like telling the other side of the story, um, a YouTuber, uh, named Jack Carter, AKA the lucky Carter, uh, who does YouTube uh, videos of, uh, unboxing and unwrapping packs of trading cards and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, he finds, uh, some packs of this card game called inscription, uh, which is cool. Like it, this, this was cool. I, I like, I had a feeling something bad was going to happen, but <laughs> I like, um, I didn't know where it was going to go. And then when it starts introducing physical versions of the card game you've been playing, I was like, okay, let, let's see where this goes. This is cool. Cause I like the idea of like a, you know, a, is this a Jumanji or something like that? Like what's going on here? So starting out cool. Uh, so he finds, uh, these, these packs starts to, uh, to open them up on a video. Um, and right here, there is some story that is more important than you think it is right now. Right. Uh, about how he comes across these packs, right? Yeah. Um, there's like, you get presented with eight videos that you can look at, right? One of them is just a bunch of static, but a bunch of them are Jack Harder, um, this actor talking to the screen, doing his YouTubes, like ripping up in his cards. And he's like, okay, I've got a weasel. I've got an octopus. What's my shiny card going to be? And then he's like trying to look for that big expensive card. It's like his card reveal streams. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then he finds a car, a pack that's been ripped open already. And he's like, Oh, that's weird. I, I hope that the shiny isn't gone. And then he takes them out. Um, and there is some coordinates written on one of the cards. This card deck, mm-hmm. this has been opened. A clue has been put on a card. It's been put back into the case. Yeah. Um, but he got these at a car boot sale. Um, he got them from an old lady who was selling off some stuff. And you, you learn pretty much fast on the back of that some more, right? Yeah. Like he calls up the woman and he's like, can you tell me anything more? Like, where did these cards come from? And the woman's like, well, um, my, my daughter, they're my daughter's things. She died. Um, she was called Casey. Um, yeah. and at this point that rang a bell in the back of my mind. And I was like, wait a second. I saw a card coming across the table from Leshy and it was called Casey and it was mm-hmm. a death card. Yeah. Um, I didn't so, remember that in particular, but I did already have the knowledge that there's a mod or a mode called Casey's mod in here. Mm-hmm. So I figured that this is an important name. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess seeing as, seeing as we're now through the second spoiler wall, I guess, to the, uh, to the no holds barred section of this, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, it turns out that this is like all the massive meta story of the game where Casey was someone that worked at the game Funa game company. She had some uh, inscription packs. Something strange went down at Game Funa. Um, you are being sucked into something weird. Um, and Jack Carter, he, he, in one of the FMVs, goes to the forest. He goes to the uh, the coordinates mm-hmm. um, that are written on that card. He digs. He finds a box. And he's doing all of this on camera. And he's uh, being a YouTuber. He's like, whoa, there's something here. Yeah. And opens up <laughs> the box. And then there is a disc in there. And yeah. the disc says inscription. Yeah. Um, and so now we're like, okay, so this, vi- this card game exists in the real world. And now this video game exists in the real world. Yeah. Uh, this is where I started to get like big Jumanji things, you know, literally <laughs> finding the box with the game inside uh, in the woods. And this was cool. And I was scared while he was digging in the woods. Like FMVs are scary to me. And I think it's mostly because they're used in games that are trying to creep you out most of the time. Yeah. Um, but I was like, 
I don't really want to look at the screen during this. It reminded me of, um, it, it, you know, it freaks me out too. And I think it's because um, I'm of the generation that watched Blair Witch Project in yeah. the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just that aesthetic of the shaky hand camera doing something mysterious and the words is going to, it's it's very vulnerable position. And I guess at this moment, you are more aware than Jack that there is something dark at play. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So then it transitions. Um, you kind of see why it has this, the game has had this grainy filter over it because it's like a camcorder type filter. Um, you're seeing it through his camcorder. Um, and then as you're going through and trying to beat Leshy and take his picture and stuff, you will sometimes hear comments from Jack uh, as you're playing. He'll say like, ah, oh, this boss again, like, ah, oh, this is bullshit, you know, stuff like that, uh, which is a, a cool little touch. I enjoyed those. Yeah, I got I got some that I'd never seen before this time around. I think I got like just a super powerful card and put a sigil on it or something. And he was like, this is going to kick ass. And I was like, oh, I never got that one first time around. (laughs) So there are these little nice like uh, one-liners from Jack. Yeah, so it changes the the game a little bit, doesn't it? It's like you're playing on a screen, but you're you're put in the position of playing as this character called Jack Carter. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've been set not just as the invisible protagonist of the game, but as a specific character now. And so there's just a lot more starting to, there's a lot more pieces coming to light and you're starting to get like an impression of this broader, this broader story that's being told the meta story. Yeah. And this, this is where it starts to get really like, you know, this is where it starts to take turns that I, I have no idea what to expect from this uh, going forward. You know, everybody who there are a couple people I recommended to inscription to after playing it. And this is the point where I started to get those text messages that are like, Dave, what the fuck is this game? Like, you know, <laughs> exactly. Which is a great feeling. Um, so then you, you, you take the film, uh, you got to beat Leshy again. Uh, and you rustle the camera away from him. You put the film in and you take his picture and everything kind of like goes black for a second. And then you come to, again, you're in that back room and you see Leshy's dead body just kind of off to the side behind some barrels and boxes, very unceremonious. Like I was expecting this big thing, but nope, it's just kind of, he's dead now and you're stuck in this room. And this is a kind of weird section of the game, very small thing, but what you have to do is quit and go back to the main menu. And I was so scared to do that. Cause I was like, yeah, what, what if I, I got stuck here? Yeah. Uh, you have Leshy's card pinned to the wall. I really like that touch as well, because you've, by taking his picture, you've put him into a card like he's been doing to you for the whole game. Mm-hmm. And you see Leshy's death card pinned to the wall. So his, his soul is now in the card. His yeah. body is gone and you're just in this cabin. But there is like, I think on my second playthrough, which I've just done, um, I think that there's been a slight change here. The first oh, time really? that I played through, there is a symbol that appears on the wall. It's like a hiking symbol um, or like a, a person symbol. It looks kind of familiar to you. You've maybe seen mm-hmm. it before. Um, but the first time I played through, it was pretty, it didn't draw my attention in, intensely. Um, and I was like, oh. I'm not sure what that's for. But then when I played it through this time, I just did this like two days ago. And now it really like pops. It's like a okay. little light show over there. It's like, don't you, like, look at this. You know what I mean? Okay. So I think that, I think that he's, pro- I think that Mullins has maybe taken feedback on this that the icon you see on the wall after defeating Leshy finally was too indistinct and not, not, yeah. not um, impressive enough to make you realize the puzzle. Yeah. I definitely didn't even see that symbol 
when I played it. So I was just kind of wandering around aimlessly. And I think I even looked it up because I was terrified to quit and not have it, you know, save my victory, basically. Yeah. So Same. I looked it up too. Yep. So what you have to do is you have to quit and go to the main menu. And we're starting Act 2. So if you haven't gotten this far, go play Continue. Act 2 is interesting. Um, yeah. So spoiler warning again. One of the things that I noticed while playing this game, booting it up, you know, from the PlayStation menu, going to the main menu, is that from the beginning, there is no option to choose new game. You're always continuing from the beginning. And I noticed that right from the beginning. Now you have the opportunity to start a new game for the first time, 10, 15 hours into it. Uh, And this boots you into Act 2, which is really weird from a story perspective i want to talk to you about this because i didn't totally understand this uh especially the the intro my my head was kind of spinning by the change in graphical style and the choices you have to make and stuff uh so you start you start a new game you're this kind of avatar and you have to choose which of the four scribes that kind of created this you know world uh you want to um, I think you're choosing the one that you want to defeat and replace, right? And this choice is really important for Act 2 and how it plays, but they, I don't feel like they signal to you how important it is. It's just kind of like, pick one, and I just picked a random one. I picked Leshy because I was like, you know, Leshy's put me through a lot. I'm going to take Leshy's seat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this twist blew my mind honestly because i thought the game's probably done i thought we're reaching end game here and this was just the first really big twist of the game right so you get that fmv which totally spins you around and then all of a sudden you're booting up the new game of inscription and it's just a different game it's a pixel Mm -hmm. game it's like a zelda game it's got this different music it's got like a looks like a super nintendo game yeah it's the pokemon trading card game uh, for the game, I have Boy not Color. played that. So okay, it's it is. This is what the Pokemon trading card game is. You go to the different places, you defeat the kind of underlings, you take on the boss in card battles, and then you move on. It is like this. This is what it is. Right. So it's like a a one for one. Yeah. It, it's a. This is a bit more grown up, and there's more puzzles uh, to be had here than in the Pokemon trading card game. But it is very similar. Uh, mm-hmm. So. What choosing that scribe does, the scribe you want to replace, is it gives you their deck. It's the starter deck, right? It's the starter deck. Yeah, the starter deck. This is where the card game really opens up. And you see that what you thought was the card game was just Leshy's version of the card game. And there are three other types. And I think I'm lucky that I picked Leshy because I had a card game that I was familiar with because some of the other ones use very unfamiliar mechanics and it would be really hard if you picked the one with the 
you know, the wizard deck with the moxes, I think they're called. Um, which one did you pick? I picked PO3. So I got the technology deck. Okay. Um, which is just, um, it just blows your mind immediately because you're used to less, you used to, you're used to sacrificing squirrels, you're used to mm-hmm. having your side deck. You feel that you've learned the card game. Um, and you've done well. You've defeated the final boss. Um, and then all of a sudden, the rug is pulled from under your feet as the player, basically. Um, there are actually four different decks here. There is no squirrel side deck, so you don't know how to get your cards onto the board. There are new currencies being introduced. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out that Leshy is one of four. Um, Leshy has been the big bad for the entire first act of the game. Turns out he's one of four. There are the four scribes, right? Um, yeah. So there is Grimora. And she's like the queen of the dead. There is Magnificus, who you've been seeing glimpses of. He's the painter and the magician. Yeah. And he paints mm-hmm. cards and he's like a pixel wizard. And then there is, so I've said Grimora, and there's PO3. Um, mm-hmm. And PO3 is this uh, machine that prints cards. So it's very much getting very meta already with the creation of cards, the creation of them mechanically, the creation of them artistically. And you've got mm-hmm. this Lord of the Dead, and then there's Leshy, who lives in his cabin in the woods, and he takes cards by photographing things. So they're yeah. all making cards in different ways. Um, and you get you you realize that the four scribes basically um, intertwine with the talking cards from Act One. I mean, I don't know if I'm breaking your uh, no, you're good talk through here, but like um, as something that we didn't mention actually that was really cool was um, as as you play through Act One, the talking cards evolve a little. So the Stoat. Um, his his head starts to change, and I didn't notice it in my playthrough. It's like his his head started to square off. Hmm. Um, no, I didn't like, notice either. There's like but... three there's um there's three phases for each card, and I did notice it on my first playthrough that his head has gone into a square, and his ears are like little teddy ears now. And the stink hmm. bug um starts to evolve away from being a stink bug. She gets like a a strange silhouette of human hair, um and like the hmm. um the bones that are around the stink bug start to evolve into jewelry. And I remember noticing it on my first playthrough and thinking, this is weird. Like I just don't get it. I didn't think about it yeah. again, but something that we realize now is that, um, Leshy had basically trapped these people in the cards. Um, and yeah. so, you know, PO3, he'd done a death card for PO3. He's done some kind of, you know, um, coup. And he's basically just yeah. put these other, 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 uh, bosses into cards. Um, and they are the mm-hmm. cards that have been trying to help you break out of chapter one. Uh, but now yeah. you have to face off against them in a new pixel game. Yeah. And uh, I liked the kind of go through, battle the underlings, solve the puzzle. It, it, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know if I recommend the Pokemon trading card game, but th- this is what it is. So you, you go to their, you know, their hideout, their, their home or the wizard tower or whatever, solve the puzzles, fight the underlings, and then do the boss battle. And, uh, I didn't like the card game as much in this one. Um, and I think it's because I started with Leshy's deck. And then once I realized there were more cards, I started to add in different things into my deck, which diluted it and made it. So I had too many things going at the same time. Yeah. And this was just a little bit less fun. And, uh, one of my friends, um, texted me and said he started with the wizard deck and it was he found it very difficult because it's like you said it's a completely new game it has almost nothing to do with leshy's version of the game and it can be really hard uh if you make the if you just pick one without knowing the consequences of your choice because it's not asking you what deck you want it's asking you what scribe you want to replace and 
it's it would be a shock if you picked one that gave you a deck and you're like, I don't know how to make this work. Yeah, that was me. I got the PO3 deck, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my friend actually restarted and just like was like, okay, I'm just going to pick Leshy because I'm familiar with that. Thing is, though, Leshy's deck is broken too. The side deck is gone. So you, you no longer have any means of getting your cards onto the table because you need squirrels. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the Leshy deck is as broken as the other decks. Like none of them work yeah. anymore. Yeah, even Leshy's, it was a little bit less fun, but at least I knew the mechanics um, and that helped me get through it. I didn't have a ton of trouble with the Act 2, you know, card bosses, even though I believe they make the requirements for beating them. Um, Instead of giving them two lives, they just double how far you have to get on the scale, right? Right. But I mean, I don't know what you're, did you play through this Act basically using the Leshy system? It may have just been that my, like, expectations for it were that it would play the same as in act one, you know, how, how I had my strategies and my proven ways to win. Mm. And it's just a little bit different. And I didn't like it that much. I think it's intensely different. Actually. It's like, it's torn up the rule book and thrown it back at you and said, Mm -hmm. like, you have to start again now. Um, But something that I noticed was that I went to Leshy's area first on this little Zelda map, started fighting battles, started losing because I didn't, have squirrels anymore. I didn't know how anything worked. Um, but mm-hmm. if you go up to a chest and open it, you'll get um, a foil pack of cards that you can then rip open. And it's a mixture. So it's yeah. like some machine cards, some leshy cards that use blood. Um, machine cards use actual energy, which is a new currency. Some Grimora yeah. cards, which use bones, which is a, uh, you know, something that you are familiar with. And then some Magnificus cards that use mox. There's the mox cards, basically. Right. But if you do go around that map, like there's a little drawers and cupboards that you can open. So the starter deck mm-hmm. isn't, or it's like it, it, it is a little bit of a slap to the player. It is saying like the methods that you think you know no longer work. Um, and you're going to have to solve this new puzzle now. And that definitely mm-hmm. felt bad to me too. Like I felt bad. I was like, I've won and now I feel like I'm just <laughs> been slapped like, no, down. No, the game's like, yeah. no, 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 you did not win yet. Um, yeah. But I did, the way that I got through this one, um, I got through this pretty quickly. Um, I went to all the corners of the map, opened all the drawers and cupboards, got like five different cards, uh, packs, uh, ripped them all open. And so I had like many, many cards to choose from, um, from the mechanical mocks, undead and leshy decks. And mm-hmm. then realized that, um, I, Leshy wasn't going to do it anymore because there's no squirrel side deck. So one currency isn't enough. There is an energy currency. And every time you take out an enemy, you get a little bar of energy. It's like a battery. Yeah. So there's a new currency there. So I think, and then bones, which we are familiar with. So, yeah. um, it turns out that what you need to do is curate your deck here using some, some cards that use energy, some cards that are mocks, some cards that use blood and some cards that use bones. And there are more currencies mm. at play. So it's a more, um, it's, it's doubled the card game. Um, and you can no longer use just the Leshy deck. You have, cause if you run yeah. out of squirrels, you don't have any blood. You can't get your animal cards down. You have but full battery though. So you need to get your machine cards down. And they are things mm. like Jeeps that drive around and shoot the enemies. Um, <laughs> and they are like helicopter drones. Um, and so all of these different decks that you have now, it's, it just takes the game and multiplies it into a yeah. whole new card game, changes all of the rules is really disorientating. Um, mm-hmm. And you have this pixel art game that you're playing. First time I played through it, I was not fond of this section. Second time I'm playing through it now, I'm loving it. 
Like I know what it is now. So it's that shock yeah. is gone of um, no longer being in the cabin, no longer having my familiar blood system and my cracked mm-hmm. code. But now I actually like this so much more on the second playthrough because I realize that it's just a multiplication of the card game that makes it more complicated in a, in a way that I'm really enjoying this time around because it's not it's not such a slap down for me as the player. Yeah, interesting. I I never put I never put together that you needed to use the energy. So the way that I beat this was just adding some of the um, the undead cards in to take advantage of bones. So my deck was half fleshy, half undead, and I still didn't have much trouble with this uh, section. But that's interesting that you, yeah, you figured out that that energy bar can be basically used for free cards uh, a couple times per match, right? Yeah, it's another currency. So if you got no, yeah. so I was able to put down soldiers and troopers and turrets. So I had a real mixture of undeads. Uh, I, I skipped the moxes. I still don't fully understand the mox system. Um, no, me but either. the, the machine <laughs> cards, I mean, maybe it's because I picked the machine cards as my starting deck. Um, so I was basically stuck with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then I opened a, a pack in Leshy's house and I had animals. And so I was able to sort of formulate a deck by smashing those two together and figure it mm-hmm. out. You know, if I'd picked Leshy first, I probably would have drove, driven close to the, the center of the road like you did just to kind of get through it. Yeah. Those, um, those kind of booster packs that you get is another thing where I'm, I'm playing this and I'm thinking like, if Daniel Mullins didn't play the Game Boy Color Pokemon trading card game, I will be shocked. Right. Cause it, that's the same in that game. You get booster packs as rewards for beating, uh, for winning matches or stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. So you kind of go through, um, I don't, I don't really have a whole lot to say about this part of the game. Um, like, you know, stuff that happens. Um, it is cool to see the three bosses from act one as NPCs just hanging out around Leshy's cabin. That was pretty cool. And the stuff that's going on in the wizard tower was really fucked up. And I felt really bad for the, uh, the students who are kind of undergoing all kinds of, you know, sensory and bodily torture, uh, as part of their training or whatever they want to justify it. That's the thing. Yeah. We, we realize now that Leshy, the big bad is actually one of four big bads. There are four of them. Mm -hmm. They are all maniacs. They all live in different corners (laughs) of this game. And we've just encountered the the first one face to face. And that was the Leshy Mm -hmm. game. But now there are three more big bads in this game and they're all maniacs and they're all interesting. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know, you talked a little bit, I'll mention briefly that like you talked about the Pokemon game. We've talked about Slay the Spire. We've talked about the, uh, the making of the cards with a brush, the making of the cards with a print press. Um, it occurs to me at this point that like, um, this is a card game for people that really love card games. This is, um, mm. I get the feeling that Daniel Mullins has obviously loved these games. He's played all the games we're talking about. He's, um, there are tri- various tributes to these different card games that we're talking about yeah. and what he has made. He's taken bits of all of them. He's taken rules from here, rules from there, built systems out of them, and then changes the rules to different card games throughout the, throughout the different games that you play. Like taking away the Magic the Gathering side deck, replacing it with the Pokemon energy system, literally. Um, yeah. It's like uh, various tributes to various card games that he has clearly loved. And this is his love letter to them in some way with mm-hmm. his own twisted horror sensibility as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And that kind of continues uh, as we go into act three. Uh, we're not quite to act three yet, but that kind of those love letters to other games that he enjoys and game mechanics that have really obviously really stuck out to him uh, continues in act three. Uh, so 
Yeah, Act 2, as you, you do learn um, that Leshy had captured uh, PO3 as the stoat, and then it, it only takes a little bit more of a thinking to realize that the other two talking cards are probably the other scribes, right? And so, like, we're in this kind of, we were in the this timeline where Leshy was the one in control. And I all, these scribes are constantly, like, vying for control of the world uh, through their version of the card games or something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but what the, that enough, that is enough for me, right? The four scribes vying for control. And when they get control, their version of the game rules, right? Right. So there's that. And then there is this strangeness, additional strangeness that the card game is somehow leaking out into the world, which we've got an inklings of that now, mm-hmm. you know, like the fact that people have been turned into death cards. The fact that these mechanics are somehow leaking through the screen and affecting people in strange ways, and that there is some connection between the real world and this this make-believe card game world is yeah. starting to come into focus a little. Mm-hmm. And um, the meta storyline uh, continues um, as you play through this. I, I forget the exact timing of it, but you do open up another set of FMVs where the YouTuber uh, kind of contacts the game company, asks them about it. The game company is like, hey, where'd you get that? And he's like, oh, Never mind. Don't know what you're talking about. And then uh, they send somebody to the house. Um, this is like this is where the FMVs start to just start to lose me a little bit. Like I'm still interested in what's going on in the plot, but there's like a little bit of an amateurish quality to this. And I know that this is an indie game. They're not going to hire expensive actors and stuff like that. There is a bit of an amateurish quality to. The, especially the scene where the woman comes to the house and kind of interrogates him. He lies and gets her to leave that scene. And then the stuff that happens later, it's I'm still at this point, I'm still interested in what's going on. Like why are they sending basically like a hitman or something out to try and recover this game? But yeah, I, I've said it, <laughs> it starts to lose. I, me ag- here I agree with you. Um, I think, I think that, it tries to do a lot, this game, um, and most mm-hmm. of it incredibly successfully. I think one of the weaker elements of it is is the the movie, you know? It's not yeah. exactly immortality, let's put it that way. It's just a much <laughs> lower budget. This is this is um this is the low budget version where you just get a camcorder and um put it together. So that I agree with you that, that part does tail off a little bit. Like the meta yeah. story FMV is um it it does um it goes downhill, um, for sure. But there is still at this point in the game, there is still a bit of shock value and fear to watching the FMVs for me because you spend a lot of time playing this card game and then you kind of have in the back of your head, oh yeah, there's this weird, mysterious, you know, real life storyline happening. And then when the FMV menu comes up, I'm like, ooh, I wonder what's going on. And there are corrupted FMV files too, where you'll click on those, the video's all fucked up. Maybe you'll hear a word, maybe you won't hear anything. And it's just a couple, you know, 10 seconds of static and blurred or corrupted video. And that is at the same time, I feel like kind of cheap, but it works on me. I am creeped out watching those. So. Right. And I mean, when I ended up watching the spoiler videos about the, the, um, extended game, which we'll talk about soon, I guess. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It turned out that the static in in those videos is actually packed with clues, 
if you pause it, if you Is go through it? it frame by frame, you start to get web addresses that you can go mm. and actually look up on the internet that lead you to fake websites for e.g. GameFuna. Yeah. And so I didn't do that. I'm not that, I'm not that kind of player. No. Um, I don't dive into, I'm not the guy that's on Reddit trying to figure out the, the language of Fez, you know? Yeah. Um, so in this game, I didn't do it either. I didn't, I didn't engage with the ARG, um, side of this game. Yeah. Um, but, but that's where the clues are found. Interesting. Um, th- that enabled people to unlock the mystery. That makes a lot of sense. I'm also like you. I am, um, I, I will just say that if a game were to pique my interest a lot, maybe I would, maybe not. But these FMVs did not pique my interest enough to start pausing and trying to, you know, start to sleuth it out or something. Yeah, same here. Um, the card games and the uh, more interested in the scribes than Jack yeah. Carter, I would say. Yeah, 100%. So we're moving into Act 3 now. So after the music break here, we're going to start talking about Act 3 and the conclusion of the story. If you have not finished that kind of lovely uh, pixelated Game Boy Color Pokemon trading card game section, then stop listening and we'll see you after you beat it. So getting into Act 3, so after you beat Act 2, everything goes all glitched out. P03 um, assumes power of the card game uh, because you have taken... In my case, I thought it was because I took Leshy out when Leshy was in control. I think it just happens regardless of who you pick. P03 kind of grabs the reins, right? Yeah, it turns out that I I think the way I understand it, the fact that Leshy has um, done what he did to the scribes um, is because they themselves were getting a little out of hand. And so he has contained mm-hmm. them temporarily in his world. Um, his motives for that become apparent to us over time. But the <laughs> next, um, the next super ambitious scribe is definitely PO3. He is yeah. the, the scribe of technology. Um, and he has bigger ambitions than Leshy ever had. And, um, yeah. and we're going to find out about that. <laughs> yeah. So again, the game changes. Uh, gone is that kind of, um, Game Boy Color-esque kind of aesthetic. Now we're in kind of a room-by-room, like dungeon-crawling type aesthetic, and it's it's all kind of high-tech themes here, so lots of like blue and neons and stuff like that. It's a very blue color palette as you're walking through here. And the game mechanics have changed too. So even before getting into the card game, um, you walk room-by-room, And this introduces kind of a Souls-style checkpoint system where you need to make it from checkpoint to checkpoint. Uh, Once you beat enemies, they're gone. Um, And then if you kind of save at these checkpoints, I think it brings them back. Um, I could be wrong, but I think so. We're actually past my where I'm up to my new playthrough now, so I'm relying on um, like one-year-old memories from now on. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I will say that this third game... um, it's another card game. He's torn up the rule yeah. book again and he's mm-hmm. like, take a third batch, figure this one out. This one's different yep. again. Going to change the rules again. Going to change the look again. You are now in the, you know, this matrixy, like electric blue 3D modeled game 
where you're yeah. going to play a whole different card game again. This time it's like, like you said, it's like if the cabin was Leshy's envisioning of his game, um, with all of those like rustic things around and creepy things around and it's engaged in darkness, nature, deep in the woods. It's Leshy's world. Mm-hmm. Now we're in PO3's world and PO3 is the scribe of technology, electricity, machinery, mass production information and so the game reflects this whole other scribe now and we get all of po3's personality outlook and this is po3 world the game yep and so you're moving around on this map you need to go to these four corners and you know beat the bosses and stuff like that but this game actually has a lot more like choice you can go in any direction you want to and there are secret rooms uh to find there's a lot of like really good exploring um, in here. So you, you're rewarded for poking around, even if it doesn't look like there's, you know, a path through this wall, it might just be an invisible path. And I had a really good time with this. Like, again, before we even talk about how the card game changes, just this, like kind of moving around the map part. Yeah. Moving around them. I didn't, I didn't, I'm not sure if I found secret rooms in the, the card game. Um, there's definitely a whole nother larger getting up from the table, um, oh. section no, in the know? card game there's there's secret rooms um yeah, kind of invisible sure. walls and stuff i'm not sure i ever got that mm. but you're right like the uh the stuff in the cabin um is different too so like act one you can get up and kind of walk around and explore around but the difference here is that, this time right yeah so different theming and the other difference here is that leshy let you get up whenever you wanted and in this one you're kind of like handcuffed to the table and you can only get up when po3 lets you get up yeah it's a whole different personality you're playing against now this is when i started to think of leshy as the good old days yeah (laughs) yeah exactly that creepy ass cabin is suddenly like you know if i could just go back there right exactly because now this maniac is like we're playing on a screen and we're playing for seemingly for keeps this time you know Yeah. So the card game changes. And again, so we're fully away from sacrifices and bones and stuff like that. This one uses that energy bar system. That was the main kind of currency that I engaged with here. You'll also find ways to uh, use those magic gems, the, the moxes, if I'm remembering the word right. I rarely use those. And you'll also find ways to make circuits because there's an electric, uh, electricity theming to this. Um, I didn't really mess with the circuits though, either. I was pretty much just rolling with that energy system. Um, I, I, um, <clears throat> I think having assembled a deck that included energy and PO3 cards in my, in chapter two, yeah, I, I had become like more aware of what the circuit building system did. And so because I'd been playing with a primarily PO3 slash Leshy deck in chapter two, I was able to bridge over into this PO3 um, game more easily and mm-hmm. was maybe like open to the new systems that were at play here. Yeah, that makes sense. I, well, you know, when I play games like this, um, I've recently had this with Xenoblade Chronicles three, if they introduce new mechanics, but I don't feel like I need them, I won't use them just to use them. And I didn't feel like I ever needed circuits or the magic gems. So I just didn't, it's pretty much as simple as that. Not that I think that they're you know, bad or not fun or anything. It's just wasn't necessary. So I didn't really do it. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, I I didn't remember that there were moxes in this part of the game. Um, Mm. So I'm pretty sure that I didn't use them. I think that's the one (laughs) deck of the four scribes decks that I didn't fully engage with. Um, Yeah. 
but maybe I will this time on my second playthrough because, you know, um, I want to try out the whole game this time. Uh, yeah. Miss, see the things that I missed first time around. Yeah. And these, the, you know, these card battles in this section are not really that difficult either. Uh, you have to adjust your strategy because the game is different, but it's kind of the game maintains a pretty level, like pretty consistent level of difficulty as you go through, even through the three acts, I feel like, uh, because they are changing up how the game works, like on a base level. Uh, throughout the acts. So the final boss is obviously more difficult than the first one you're going to fight, but it's not like act three is way harder than act one or anything like that. I thought it was pretty fair and consistent throughout. Yeah, same. And I think that adds to my my theory that this is like, whilst it's for sure a card game, card mechanics all the time, the overall structure of the game is that of a narrative game. It's a linear Mm -hmm. narrative experience. Um, And so if you're coming through this narrative story experience, then um, you you your progress is necessary for you to see the next part of the story. Yeah. Um, and so the gameplay is cards, mm-hmm. but the structure is a linear story based game, um, which is really interesting to me. Um, and that's maybe one of the things that makes Inscription pop for me. So you are using your card knowledge, your um, experience of card games, and to understand the changing rules that are being presented to you. But all in all, it's a, it's a story game about these scribes, about Jack Carter, and the way that you access that story is through card battles. Right. And so like back to the story, I, I remember in act one thinking that Leshy is evil. I have to take out Leshy. And then by comparison, Leshy is, uh, a really friendly dude compared to PO3. And so you're in this section thinking like, you know, not only do I want to take out PO3, I have to. This He has bad motives. I, I keep saying he, it's a computer. It has bad motives. Um, there's a kind of world domination uh, type of like story that you're, you're trying to prevent PO3 from uploading. Is it from uploading the game or uploading the kind of the, the cursed old data? Uh, do you remember? Right. This is when we start to hear more about the old data, right? Yeah. Um, but it's been a while since I played it, as I said, I'm going to stop saying that now, but, um, yeah. <laughs> like, um, my memory of this is that, um, PO3 has some kind of crazy scheme going on. I forget what it is exactly, mm. but it might be that PO3 wants to trap everyone in cards and print them all off. Um, it's for, it's like the lawnmower man, basically, you know, the end of the lawnmower man, spoilers for the lawnmower man <laughs> <laughs> at the end of that movie, like when all the phones ring and the data is out in the world, it's bad. Mm. PO3 is trying to do something like that. He's trying to take all of the, the twistedness of the inscription game and he's a megalomaniac and he wants mm. to break out of the game and take over the world. And yeah. so, um, the game takes on a whole different scope in that these scribes who've been crawling around in the Zelda game and Leshy who just wants to play cards in his cabin, even if he's a bit creepy, mm-hmm. like PO3 wants to actually turn the world into his own printing press of people cards or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you're going through this kind of, you know, room by room dungeon crawling map. And what you're trying to do is turn these satellites to a certain direction so that you can prevent this. And at certain times, something goes wrong in the kind of factory setting and PO3 will take off your cuffs, let you walk around and go fix the problem. And during one of these, you encounter the other scribes uh, who are kind of waiting in ambush uh, for the right moment to strike and um, take PO3 down uh, basically. So you, I forget how you set this up. It's, it's been, I think I beat this game a couple months ago and I didn't write it down. I should have, 
Uh, this, John, you're looking at my outline. My outline is huge because of my memory. And if I don't write it down, <laughs> I won't remember it. I don't remember how we do this, but you beat PO3 and the other scribes ambush him and uh, kind of prevent the plan, right? Yeah. I just checked and you've got 2,700 words of notes here, um, <laughs> yeah. which is like longer than some people's degree thesis. But um, yeah. yeah, I remember the moment you're talking about because um, we've only seen the other scribes so far. We've seen Leshy. He was in the cabin. We've seen that he's an old man with wild hair. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like a nature man. Yeah, We've seen PO3 now physically. PO3 is this um, virtual being, lives in the screen, creepy face icons blinking smileys at you yeah um but we never saw really grimora or magnificus yet until they reveal themselves to be in the factory and so we see that grimora and magnificus are these crazy looking creatures grimora is like this 3d model of like a crazy witch lady like um a little bit like um spirited away uh witch lady and Magnificus, Magnificus is like this wizard that is like a giant ball of hair. <laughs> and uh, the three of them are basically telling you, like, cut the power in this factory. PS3 is mental. We need to delete him and his data. Yeah. And so that's what you do. And that's kind of your quest. And it's um, not like you, you've kind of seen, at least in my head, I started to put together like this happening in here. Bad data that needs to be deleted, as well as what's going on in the FMV. There's a reason they're sending people to Jack Carter's house, something that they don't want people to see. So pretty easy. Like, even if they did give you the choice, like, do you want to delete the data or not? I definitely would have, you know, they don't give you the choice though. You, you have to. So, yeah. um, this sets up an incredible ending, like just truly great ending to this game. So you beat PO three, the other scribes ambush him. They, uh, you know, set the files to delete and it's a slow delete process, real slow. But as it's deleting, um, things kind of start to crumble. Like the, the game itself starts to crumble and disappear. And this sets off. Yeah. Like this ending. So what you do is you go through and you meet the scribes, you see their version of like, if they were in control of the card game, the way Leshy was in act one, you get to see them in their world and their version of the card game. So you start out, I believe with uh, Grimora and you do a little duel using her card system that's built around bones. Um, and you know, you have a little chat and a key thing here, like just adds to it. You shake hands after you're done. And when they're about to be deleted, you shake their hand and this continues with all of them, but starting with Grimora And I got the feeling, even in this little duel, that this could have been the game. This system built on the bones could have been act one. Had they had Daniel Mullins decided to build it with Grimora in control, this is a fully fleshed out card game too. I distinctly remember that. It is. um, And all of the assets, this is is the thing that blew my mind afterwards. I would say that this ending is like the... 2001 space odyssey ending of video games <laughs> like <laughs> like it does so much more than i expected yeah. um it's this game has already done so much more than i expected by reinventing itself entirely twice with new rules he's designed three games here and in the end we realize that he's actually designed five games and we just get glimpses of the last two mm-hmm. so he's made all of the assets for it like the bones one is in like a dungeon with like rocks and spiders yeah. and um, and then the next one is in a, a whole different wizardy world. And, and the fact that he hasn't made these 
made these environments for these games with the pieces that you move on the board, with the card illustrations, with the new opponent, and with new rules. You only play them for a minute or two, really. Yeah. But they are work functioning card games. Um, that ambition in, in this is nuts. Yeah. I didn't research this, but I hope that someone is out there modding up a Casey's mod of the other versions of the game, because I think it'd be fun just to jump in and see, you know, is this as complete as I thought it would be? Yeah. I mean, he said that he was never going to make an endless version of the Leshy game and did. Yeah. So let's see how well it sells on PlayStation. (laughs) Maybe that second DLC is coming. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I forget the order of these. Is Leshy the last one or is Magnificus the last one? Yeah, I think PO3 we're done with now because he's yeah. like he's been overridden. Um, and then we get Grimora and then we get... I'm not sure if we get PO3 again, but we definitely get Grimora and then Magnificus and then it ends with Leshy. Okay. And the, Magnific- the Magnificus game is nuts too. <laughs> it, it's wild. So the the one with Grimora, you're, you're sitting at a table just like you have been with PO3 and with Leshy. The Magnificus one, you're standing on like a cliff edge and you have like these, it reminded me of the, the chess scene in Harry Potter, right? You have these figures down on the board below you, these life-size figures and the cards you play influence what figures are up there and how they attack each other. And to your point, this is a crazy thing for Daniel Mullins to have coded and created and everything just for this little, you know, 10 minutes that you spend in this. Absolutely nuts. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the The game itself, um, there are no consequences for winning or losing these games. So the Magnificus version of the game itself was definitely the one I had the least fun with during this ending section. But the yeah. visuals are so different from everything else that that carried me through. And I was like, this is cool. This is so yeah. cool. Yeah. The thing is that Leshy's cabin's so dark. The factory was grim. Grimora's in a dungeon. And then when mm. we play, in my memory, it's been a year, but like it was sunlight. Suddenly yeah. it was like this wide open plain. There was like water as far as the eye could see or something like that. And this huge kind of fantasy environment with wizards running around and stuff. It was such a visual turn. It was like mm-hmm. a whole separate imagining um, of a whole separate game. And the fact that the fact that like the game's falling apart as you're playing it. So, you know, as you're playing Grimora, there's like bits of static. There's like parts of the game disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you come through to, to play Magnificus and he's sitting opposite you too. And like the whole thing is collapsing around you. It's like the, uh, you know, the end of the film Labyrinth when the, uh, the labyrinth comes apart and turns into this like MC Escher falling parts mm-hmm. drama. It's like the whole game is just crumbling in on itself with these people and you still in it. Wonderful yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. And then uh, you have your final game with Leshy. And this was like, had you asked me in Act 1, um, Dave, are you going to be sad when something happens to Leshy? I would have said no, absolutely not. And then this final thing against Leshy like, got me a little bit emotional uh, because you've come to understand that Leshy isn't this evil you know, thing that's keeping you prisoner against your will because they like to torture you and stuff like that, which I definitely thought in act one, Leshy just wants to play cards. Like that's the main motivation. Leshy just loves this game. And so you have a final, um, duel with Leshy. You shake Leshy's hand, which was a really like, just, uh, emotional moment. Really good. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta mention as well that there's a moment in the last game with Leshy. I think it, by now the environment is gone right. I think you're just sitting in a white void, if, if that's in my memory. Um, and as you're looking at the cards, like the values vanish. So 
Like, no longer yeah. is there health, no longer is there attack. Mm-hmm. And you're like, the card game's over. But Leshy's like, no, let's just play for fun now. And yeah. he's still putting cards down. And you're not taking, he just wants to play. And suddenly it casts that whole first chapter. Like, he is the least of the villains of this um, quartet. And you mm-hmm. feel fond of him at this point. Like, he's just yeah. this old forest guy who wants to play cards with you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's it's a really beautiful moment that I didn't like would have never seen coming. Um with the way that, you know, the game starts and you really feel like we said at the beginning, you you felt oppressed and kept against your will and, you know, forced to play this game and he takes your picture and kills you that way and traps your soul in cards and well that I mean that's evil, but <laughs> comparatively, uh Leshy's the closest thing you have to a friend in this game. Right, and he's not trying to take over the world. He just wants to live in the yeah. forest. Just wants to play cards. <laughs> just turn rabbits into cards. That's okay. I could, it's not so bad. <laughs> I can relate. Like, I don't want to, you know, capture the souls of woodland creatures, but I do want to, you know, I just want to play games. I just want to... <laughs> well, maybe sometimes, but not all the time. Yeah, this was a super poignant, a surprisingly poignant ending, I would say. Um, yeah. It went to another another place that I was not expecting. Is an emotional note at the end there. Yeah. You mean an emotional note with uh, the scribes or with the FMV? Um, for sure, the scribes. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the FMV does not quite um, uh, trade, like it doesn't quite arrive at the same satisfying endpoint, sadly. Yeah. So, and I, I wrote this down after it in my notes. So I assume that the FMV happens after the game is, you know, over. You have these scenes with Leshy and stuff. Um just going by my notes. I don't remember exactly. I don't remember either, but yeah, yeah there's some, there's some extra FMV at the end here. Yeah. So the, the FMV portion ends with, um, the, uh, the Carter. I don't know why I wrote down Luke. That's not his name. Is it? It's Jack. Jack Carter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's his stage name. I'm not sure. Maybe he's, Oh, okay. All right. Maybe he has another name. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the Carter accesses, uh, the old data. He's been doing some digging. Um, he, uh, you find things that it's like newspaper clippings and stuff like that, that they kind of go by quickly. And I, I wasn't interested enough to pause and read or rewind or rewatch or anything, but definitely got the feeling that he's digging up dirt on the game company, things that have happened, um, probably related to Casey. And, uh, he calls a reporter to kind of, you know, share what's happened and get the news out there. And that woman comes back to the house. Uh, he opens the door. She walks in and just shoots him uh, without any kind of circumstance. And that's the end of that. Uh, and this was like after everything else that had gone through, that had gone on, this ending was sudden, unsatisfying, and again, felt a little bit amateurish. Uh, this is not my point. I'm taking this from watch out for fireballs, but they made an excellent point. She's like a 25 year old woman. Why is she a hitman for this game company? It's a little bit weird, but, um, a little bit unsatisfying. Yeah. Casting, not great there. Um, and I, I, I've got two sort of views on this as well. Like the first time I played through it, which is, I guess the chair in which you're sitting now, like I was a little like, um, I wasn't fully satisfied by the FMV ending. Um, it's definitely the weakest point of this brilliant game is, mm-hmm. is the FMV. But looking at it now, I've watched a pair of videos, which I, I will send you links to them. So there is someone on YouTube okay. who has gone all the way in. Um, I think there's two 20 minute videos and it explains the process of how people unwrapped the ARG, 
the clues that they found in the game. Some of it's mm-hmm. pretty fascinating. It goes into Daniel Mullins' other games. You have to go and look at code in the hex or whatever. Like, it's crazy rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, but at this point, after I just finished the game um, the first time around, I was like, okay, fine. Like, the FMV tripped over a little at the end there. But that I think looking at it now, on my second playthrough now, where I've learned everything there is to learn about this game, you know, like, follow, followed the ARG all the way through on YouTube, and having a second playthrough now, I think I'm seeing it more holistically this time around. So mm-hmm. chapter two being like slightly less fun than chapter one or slightly less impressive, but being a much more complex card game. Um, mm-hmm. I was ready for it this time. So that gear change didn't feel so brutal. Like yeah. this time when I went into part two, I was like, Oh, great. It's the Zelda part, you mm-hmm. know, and like it'll be the same <laughs> when I come into part three. It's like I can kind of made my peace with my first playthrough experience now. And so when I'm looking at this in, in, in its totality, like the the way that the story ties up of um what's what's really been happening here is actually if you were to look at it on paper like he did a great job it's so imaginative it's so big in scope mm-hmm. um the fact that Jack Carter has found the cards that led him to the disc that led him to the game we've been playing the game the game is escaping from the screen trying to take over the world and we've been implicated in all of that there's a real world conspiracy with the the company who made the game trying to cover this up because it would be the end of their company for sure. Mm-hmm. And they end up killing Jack Carter. It's like, if it was done a little better, it would be a really good indie movie, you know? Mm. Um, but the fact that like some of the execution of some of the late game FMV doesn't quite get there, it's a bit of a bummer. But if, if you look at the plot in its totality, I think um, all of the pieces fit, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you made a good point as you're going through in your first playthrough. There are so many drastic changes, big surprises that those would kind of dominate your attention as you're going through. So I think that's a, a good observation there. Um, it would be interesting if I actually did replay the whole game uh, to see if I come out of it uh, with a little bit different view. I do agree, though, that the story that is told through the card games and then through the FMVs does all tie together really well. Um, it is a well-constructed story. There aren't any loose ends that I really, you know, feel are critical. There are loose ends because obviously people have gone digging for more information and more backstory, but it's not like they introduced something and then never explained it. This isn't lost or something like that. So yeah, I, I can totally see that. So I did kind of check the wiki about what people have found in the uh, the ARG stuff, um, and this is quick wiki diving. The stuff I found, frankly, I'm glad that I didn't dig for it uh, because the stuff I found was would not be the most satisfying answers. Um, and let me figure out how to word this. So the the stuff they found in the old data file um, is related to uh, kind of a, a Nazi curse or a discovery made on Hitler's right. corpse and stuff like that. Right. So there's this whole separate layer, isn't there? That like the, the, the root of all evil in inscription, like where did yeah. this card game come from? Mm. Um, it turns out that the, there's some old data on the disc that Jack Carter found in the forest um, deep beneath the game, beneath everything else. There's a whole yeah. story attached to that, that it's like a disc that has contained evil data that has been smuggled into the US. Mm-hmm. And the game Funa has put <laughs> the inscription game onto this disc. And then this evil that was on the disc, the old data has leaked through the game, brought yeah. the scribes to life. But, um, the fact that the old data that has a pre-story. So, I mean, that's kind of cool, actually, right? That the disc was haunted. 
And so the game that was on the disc turned into what we just played. That part I like. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is another layer to it, which is that the, the old data at the bottom of this disc has been overwritten and is like people have been trying to hide it. Spies have been fighting for it. Um, goes all the way back to Hitler. And it turns out that someone found on his corpse a game of Conoffel and the cards were put in a strange order and it was like a spell. So it was like, um, if you put, if you play the cards in this exact order, it's like a curse. Mm-hmm. And so the ultimate root of all of this evil is like Hitler's occult interest in the occult, mm-hmm. which he did have, but it's just, it's a, it's a strange little uh, twist on it all. Yeah. And that's a twist. That's the twist that when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's a bit of a disappointment. Um, I, I think I'm just to the point where unless you're doing something just cartoonish, like in glorious bastards or something like that, I don't want to see Hitler in media anymore. I'm, I'm just, it's, it's just, I've seen it so much. I just can't, I just can't think that things with involving Hitler or Nazi curses are cool. It, it just, I have a, an immediate reaction to that, uh, like that. So when I saw this, and again, I didn't do the digging. I just did some quick wiki diving about it. When I saw this, it kind of made me think back at, on the rest of the game, knowing that this was at the heart of it and made me think like, just for a second, is this still as cool as I think it is? And I came out saying, yes, it is a very cool game. And you know, the, like you said, the stuff with like the, the old curse data corrupting the game that's on top of it. And then the game trying to send it out into the real world. That's cool. It was just the Hitler part that when I saw that, I was like, who air out of the balloon a little bit, but the rest of it's cool. And since, you know, thinking about it for a few days, since I wrote my notes and then having you describe, um, that part of it, it's not as stupid as my immediate reaction told me it was, (laughs) but I still, you know, like I said, it's just, I think I'm just done with Hitler in media. I don't want to see it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I get it. I, I think if I was thinking through why on earth Hitler had to be roped into this story, yeah. um, imagine if I was Daniel <laughs> Mullins and I was, I was wanting to think of like, what's the most evil thing that could be on this disc? Mm-hmm. And he's like, what would people understand as being evil? Yeah. Um, so your mind maybe goes to, okay, let's make it like a Nazi thing. So, and then you can write this backstory of espionage. Um, yeah. The smuggling, there's, there's something that I read about smuggling the disc out of uh, allied spies, smuggling mm-hmm. the disc out. And then Game Funa just buying in bulk old discs from a warehouse. Yeah. Um, and then making games. And so it's like this old, cursed evil somehow slipping through espionage paths into the US and then ending up polluting the game. This is my current understanding of it from watching some of the, um, the inscription videos. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, Hitler is shorthand here. It's not, it's not the most, uh, interesting that it could have been, but for me, like, the plot of the haunted disc and the corrupted game that comes to life is brilliant. Um, and the fact that the four scribes are like bosses from a Zelda game is brilliant. It's mm-hmm. like Zora. It's like the four corners of the Zelda map or whatever. Um, and the fact that they um, are like incorporated into these super cool individuals with personalities and their own like twisted boss lives. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of nuts. Like I'm so here for all of that. Um, but that little bit at the end that it came from Nazi Germany is like, fair enough, man. That's like, that's the part that is maybe the least interesting of all of this. Um, Mm -hmm. but the rest of it is just so damn interesting. Yeah, it is. And like I said, I, I had that mini thought in my head just for a second where it was like, does knowing that this was at the center of this kind of meta story kind of 
taint the whole thing. And I don't think it does. It's just kind of like, all right. And I hesitate in a story this complicated to think like, uh, you know, this is bad storytelling or something, because this is obviously way, 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 way beyond my capacity as a storyteller and as a creative person in general. Uh, It's just something that I thought was, um, yeah, just a little bit of a disappointment to see that name. But I, I definitely get, you know, Hitler as a shorthand for evil. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to uh, to wrap this one up. I was going to ask you if you played Casey's mod. You said you didn't. Um, I recommend it. It's it. You know, they put modifiers and they they give you challenge things and say, like, uh, you can't use the clover that rerolls the cards or something like that. They give you little challenges to kind of spice it up. So I do recommend Casey's mod, but you didn't play it. So we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a, a really, really good conversation. I'm glad we um, worked the time zones in our favor in order to make this happen. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. This is the conversation about inscription that I have needed since I played it. Like yeah. my own review episode of this game was really short because it was shoehorned into a Halloween omnibus podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I never really did a dedicated inscription podcast. And now I have, and I'm really glad that uh, that you invited me to talk about this game. It was really nice to have the motivation to play it again. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to con- continue my playthrough. And after I've done that, I'm going to play Casey's mod. So this is kind of, it's been a great one year on from inscription, mm-hmm. like opportunity to dive back into this game. And I think this is, this is among my favorite games that I have played. Mm-hmm. I think this would probably make an all time top 10 for me. Um, and, and that has been underlined by this replay and, uh, doing this super cool, uh, analysis of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. This uh, this has been a good time. I knew that for a game like Inscription, I would need um, a guest with the uh, kind of chops, I'll say, to uh, to talk about all the things that this game is presenting for you. And I, I know I picked the right one here. So thanks again for coming on the show, man. This has been a really good time. If you're still listening, I appreciate you very much. And again, I will recommend you check out Gaming in the Wild uh, for more video game um yeah, like we said before, video games from the artistic and creative side of the tracks. So thanks you everybody for listening. Tune in next week for the next game that comes out of the backlog.